peace, namaste, and shalom. Everybody out there in dreamland, I am the beyond top secret Texan. Join me on my podcast, the Beyond Top Secret Texan podcast, where I explore the outer limits of human abilities, top secret military technologies, the reality of extraterrestrial Earth alliances, secret space wars, advanced cryptozoology, subjects of theosophic truth, esotericism, and the occult. Beyond the Top Secret Texan Podcast. Program to Kill, The Politics of Serial Murder by David McGowan. This audiobook is brought to you by t.me slash the conspiracy hole. I will be reading citations and headlines. And I will be reading the main text. Contents. Introduction, Mind Control 101. Part 1, The Podocracy. Chapter 1, From Brussels. Chapter 2, To Washington. Chapter 3, Uncle Sam Wants Your Children. Chapter 4, McMolestation. Chapter 5, It Couldn't Happen Here. Chapter 6, Finders Keepers. Part 2, There's Something About Henry. Chapter 7, Sympathy for the Devil. Chapter 8, Henry, Portrait of an MK Ultra Assassin. Chapter 9, Rancho Diablo. Chapter 10, The Myth of the Serial Killer. Chapter 11, Low Nuts. Chapter 12, Satan's Family Tree. Chapter 13, The Spawning Ground. Chapter 14, Superstars. Chapter 15, The Next Generation. Chapter 16, The Collectors. Chapter 17, Patsies and Assassins. Chapter 18, The Profiler and the Patsy. Chapter 19, Conclusions. Part 3, and in other news. Chapter 20, Boulder. Chapter 21, Atlanta. Chapter 22, Role Models. Epilogue. Introduction, Mind Control 101. The experimenters will be particularly interested in dissociative states, from the abasement de nouveau mental to multiple personality and so-called mediums, and an attempt will be made to induce a number of states of this kind, using hypnosis. From a declassified MK Ultra document. It is probably safe to say that this is not your typical, true crime, book. It is, instead, a journey into an even darker, more disturbing world, one that exists in the shadows of the world, depicted in the hundreds of formulaic serial killer biographies that line the shelves of America's bookstores. For many readers, much of the information contained within these pages will be unfamiliar, and some of the theories and ideas that are discussed may seem rather bizarre. Perhaps the most controversial theory that readers will find themselves confronted with concerns a phenomenon commonly referred to as mind control. Although the concept of mind control has long been a staple of that polluted wellspring of information known as the conspiracy theory literature, where it often mingles freely with outlandish tales of reptilian aliens and paranormal activity, it has never been a polite topic of discussion in mainstream culture. 
the only exposure that most people have had to the idea of mind control is through the often metaphorical and frequently absurd images that Hollywood has provided in a decades-long string of films, from the Manchurian Candidate and the Stepford Wives in the 1960s and 1970s, to such recent offerings as Conspiracy Theory and Zoolander, along with the remakes of both the Manchurian Candidate and the Stepford Wives. Most people are naturally quite skeptical of the notion that someone's thoughts and actions can be controlled by unseen actors. Particularly in Western culture, where the idea of free will is firmly indoctrinated, theories of mind control are inimical to the omnipresent mantra that we are all responsible for our own actions. It is quite likely then that scenarios involving mind-controlled killers, whether assassins like Lee Harvey Oswald or Saran Saran, or serial killers like Henry Lee Lucas or Charles Manson, will be summarily dismissed by many readers. Skeptics though should bear in mind that, contrary to perceptions, mind control is not a fictional creation of novelists and Hollywood screenwriters, to the contrary, there exists a substantial paper trail establishing that the U.S. intelligence community has devoted a vast amount of both human and financial resources, over a period of several decades, to the study of mind control. Along the way, luminaries of numerous social sciences have been recruited and co-opted. Detailing all the techniques and procedures that have received attention from the Central Intelligence Agency and its brethren is, unfortunately, well beyond the scope of this book. It is possible, however, to provide a rough sketch of what mind control really is, a sketch that will, it is hoped, help to demystify a phenomenon that is not, as it turns out, nearly so esoteric as it may at first appear to be. The basic methodology of mind control was revealed many decades ago by George Estabrooks, a prominent psychologist, hypnotist who worked under contract to American intelligence agencies. In his book Hypnotism, first published in 1943, Estabrooks teased his audience by noting that the intelligent reader will sense that much more is withheld than has been told. While that was undoubtedly an accurate assessment, Estabrooks nevertheless did reveal enough to allow an informed reader to construct a reasonably accurate picture of the fundamentals of mind control. The degree to which any given person is susceptible to being mind controlled is a direct function of that person's susceptibility to what are known as dissociative states. According to the psychiatric community, dissociative states or dissociative disorders include amnesia, fugue state, and what used to be called multiple personality disorder, MPD, but is now generally referred to as dissociative identity disorder, did. All of these terms describe the same basic phenomenon, a person who is seemingly in control of his or her actions over a given time period is unable, at a later date, to recall or account for those actions. As with any category of mental illness, there is no dividing line that separates those who are diagnosed with dissociative disorders from those who are normal. Virtually everyone possesses the ability to experience dissociative states. Many people, for example, are familiar with the phenomenon sometimes referred to as driving on autopilot. The scenario generally plays out as follows, you suddenly snap out of it just as you are pulling into your parking space at work and you realize, to your horror, that you can't remember anything since leaving your house. If this has happened to you, then you have experienced being in a dissociative state. In essence, you drove to work while in a fugue state and you later had amnesia. In a similar vein, it could be said that an alter personality, which you have no conscious awareness of, drove you to work. 
In any event, it is clear that someone piloted your car to work in a safe and reasonable manner, and it was someone other than you. Many people are also familiar with another common example of a dissociative state. You are deep in thought, oblivious to everything around you, possibly working on the solution to one of the world's great mysteries, when suddenly your silent meditation is interrupted, perhaps by an unexpected noise, or by someone calling your name or tapping your shoulder. As you snap out of it, you suddenly realize, much to your dismay, that you cannot remember what it was that you were so deep in thought about just moments before. If you have ever had a similar experience, or if you are familiar with the dreamlike state that some people attain just before falling asleep, or while engrossed in a book or television program, then you have experienced being in a dissociative state of consciousness. While the ability to dissociate is likely universal, or nearly so, some people are clearly more susceptible to dissociative states than are others. There is little question that someone's innate ability to dissociate can be greatly enhanced, although not necessarily by ethical means. The most severe of the dissociative disorders, MPD, did, is in almost all cases created by psychological trauma so severe that the traumatic episodes cannot be integrated into the experiences of the core personality. By far the most common cause of MPD is early childhood trauma, usually, but not always, resulting from horrific abuse by a parent or other adult guardian. Dr. Frank Putnam noted in 1989 that he was struck by the quality of extreme sadism that is reported by most MPD victims. Many multiples have told me of being sexually abused by groups of people, of being forced into prostitution by family members, or of being offered as sexual enticement to their mother's boyfriends. After one has worked with a number of MPD patients, it becomes obvious that severe, sustained, and repetitive child abuse is a major element in the creation of MPD. Dr. Deirdre Barrett, writing in 2001 for Psychology Today, offered a similar observation, dissociators, have the following traits in common, many such subjects reported a history of child abuse. Although some remembered this directly, some had been told by others that they had been battered. Other dissociators who had not been abused had suffered childhood traumas such as prolonged, painful medical conditions and before the age of 10 experienced the deaths of their parents. As mental health professionals have long recognized, the normal human reaction to highly stressful situations is what is known as the fight-or-flight response. Children, however, typically lack the ability to either fight off or flee from their attackers and abusers. This is particularly true, of course, for very young children. The human brain, that wonderfully resilient organ, therefore reacts in the best way that it can under the circumstances, it allows the child to mentally flee from the situation. When the abuse is of an extreme and sustained nature, the brain's response is to build a virtual wall around the traumatic experiences by creating a separate and distinct alter personality to deal with current and future episodes of abuse. Although MPD did as a disorder listed in the DSMIV, the veritable Bible of the psychiatric community, the public generally looks upon the notion of multiple personality with a healthy dose of skepticism, a skepticism encouraged by a news and entertainment media apparatus that generally mocks and ridicules the condition, and by a not insignificant number of psychologists and psychiatrists who deny the existence of MPD did. Strangely enough, many of the most visible and vocal members of the denial crowd tend to be psychologists and psychiatrists who have received funding from the CIA. In November 2001, researchers in Melbourne, Australia conducted what the Herald Sun described as a world-first study of multiple personality disorder. The goal of the study was to help resolve the dispute within the mental health community. 
The conclusion reached by the researchers, at least one of whom had been skeptical of the disorder before working on the project, was that individuals who suffer multiple personality disorder are not faking their alter egos. The study involved comparing the brainwave patterns of people claiming to be suffering from the disorder with the brainwave patterns of actors portraying the condition. While the actors gave outwardly convincing performances, the researchers found that there were distinct changes in the brain of sufferers as they switch personalities, while those changes were not detected in the brains of those who were just acting the part. So how does all of this relate to the concept of mind control? In the simplest possible terms, what the term mind control refers to is the process of first enhancing an unwitting subject's natural ability to dissociate, creating, in essence, the condition of multiple personality disorder, and then controlling that subject's dissociative states by creating one or more alter personalities that are effectively under the control of others and that are unknown to the core personality. But can this really be done? Is mind control as a real phenomenon, or merely the product of the fertile imaginations of various conspiracy theorists and self-described survivors? The answer to that question lies in the answers to several other questions, beginning with, do dissociative states occur naturally in the human species? As anyone who has ever driven their car to work on autopilot, or been caught daydreaming, or spacing out, can testify, the answer is yes, although the vast majority of people would not normally use the term dissociative state to describe the experience. Can the naturally occurring ability to dissociate be enhanced? The answer here also appears to be yes, albeit with the caveat that enhancing that ability generally requires the infliction of severe trauma, preferably during the vulnerable childhood years. Would the CIA and other U.S. intelligence agencies be restrained morally or ethically from inflicting such trauma? How this question is answered depends largely upon the individual reader's political orientation and level of awareness of national and world events. Serious students of covert operations know that the CIA has a long and very sordid history of sponsoring countless assassinations, civilian massacres, violent coups, and barbaric torture, interrogation centers, and that is just a short list. This bloody, and very well-documented, record suggests that there is little, if anything, that the CIA will not attempt to justify in the name of national security. Documents released through FOIA requests have revealed that, at the very least, the agency has not shied away from funding and sponsoring studies in which very young children have been dosed with LSD continuously for several weeks. If we accept that dissociation is a real and naturally occurring human ability, and that the tendency to dissociate can be enhanced, and that the intelligence community's hands are not tied by ethical concerns, then the final, and most critical, question becomes, can enhanced dissociative states, once created, be controlled? George Estabrooks was clearly convinced that that was indeed the case. He claimed that once a person's core personality had been split, it was then possible to control one or more of the alter personalities, without the conscious awareness of the primary personality. This process, according to Estabrooks, allowed the intelligence community to create super-spies, unwitting agents, who were willing to follow any orders unquestioningly. Among other duties, these super-spies made ideal couriers, since they could be fed sensitive information while in a controlled dissociative state and thereafter have no conscious awareness that they were transporting important data. Even under torture, the super-spy would reveal nothing, for as far as he or she was aware, there was nothing to reveal. Someone at the receiving end who was familiar with the super-spy's programming, however, could readily extract the information, after which the super-spy would remain blissfully unaware that a mission had been successfully completed. As dubious as Estabrook's scenario may at first appear to be, it is not so very different from the common phenomenon of driving on autopilot. 
Let us imagine that you have managed, once again, to find yourself at work with no idea how you got there. You can remember nothing beyond pulling out of your driveway. So you decide, out of curiosity, to pay a visit to a skilled hypnotist, who succeeds in putting you under, so to speak. While in the hypnotic trance, another term for a dissociative state, you would be able to relate to the hypnotist and anyone else in the room all the mundane details of your drive to work. Once brought back to a normal state of consciousness, however, you would still have no conscious memory of your drive to work unless instructed otherwise by the hypnotist. You would have served, in essence, as a super spy. All that is missing from the equation is the element of control. And how would that control be attained? Estabrooks shied away from the details, only alluding to the severe psychic torture that is required to split a person's core personality and then exert control over the alter personalities that are created. The trauma is often referred to euphemistically as a form of hypnotism. In one passage, for example, Estabrooks noted that multiple personalities are caused by a form of hypnotism in the first place. We will see that emotional shock produces exactly the same results as hypnotism. Later, he came a little closer to the truth, multiple personality can't be both caused and cured by hypnotism. Remember that war is a grim business. Suppose we deliberately set up that condition of multiple personality to further the ends of military intelligence. Still later, he came even closer, everyone can't be thrown into the deepest state of hypnotism by the use of what I termed the Russian method, no holds barred, deliberate disintegration of the personality by psychic torture, the subject might easily be left a mental wreck but war is a grim business. War is indeed a grim business, as Estabrooks was apparently fond of stating, but that argument hardly justified the type of research the doctor endorsed, including using children, who are notoriously easy to hypnotize, as research subjects. Decades after the publication of Estabrook's seminal work, another psychiatrist, hypnotist, by the name of Paul Verdier, wrote an obscure book entitled Brainwashing and the Cults, an expose on capturing the human mind. Verdier's manuscript began on a promising note, with this acknowledgement, it must be accepted that brainwashing is now being used here, in the United States, by devious persons with personal gain in mind. Unfortunately, the author followed that bold proclamation with a woefully inaccurate accounting of who those devious persons might be. He did though provide a reasonably good description of the process of mind control, although Verdier, like Estabrooks, did not use the term mind control. By Verdier's account, the objective of the would-be brainwasher is to access those areas of the brain that are outside of the individual's conscious control. This is accomplished, the doctor explained, by circumventing the normal inhibiting response of the cerebral cortex so that an individual's voluntary conscious self-control will be bypassed or short-circuited. In order to disable what Verdier referred to as the brain's cortical block, all of the following were recommended, alcohol, euphoric drugs, isolation, solitary confinement, and the most dramatic and unique item in the brainwashing arsenal, hypnosis. All of these brainwashing techniques, significantly, have been exhaustively researched by the CIA. Verdier went on to explain that in order to achieve truly lasting states of brainwashing or mind control, it is necessary to subject the victim to profound and deep emotional states. The recommended emotional states are fear, shock, and anxiety, all of which have an intense disinhibitive effect on the human brain. Even more effective is pain, because, according to the eminent neurologist, Dr. Wilder Penfield, sensations of pain from the muscular sensory system enter the sub-cortical brain regions directly. 
With a passage seemingly lifted from Estabrook's writings, Verdier left no doubt that pain and fear are the most useful items in the MK Ultra toolbox. Russian political scientists do support the belief that given enough punishment, all the people in any time or place are susceptible to hypnotic control. Verdier echoed other of Estabrook's beliefs as well, including the idea that brainwashing could and should be widely utilized for benevolent purposes, and the notion that children are ideal candidates for mind control programming. Brainwashing can be slow, insidious and sure when applied to children early in life. It is likely that there is a short period of time following corporal punishment when the child is in a state of decortication, hypnosis, so to speak. This is the ideal time to plant the positive instructions for better behavior in the future. What the good doctor considered corporal punishment and positive instructions was left to the reader's imagination. The vulnerability of children to dissociative states brought on by traumatic abuse is one of the reasons that the CIA and other intelligence agencies have played key roles in the creation of relatively mainstream satanic groups, as well as in denying the existence of underground satanic cults engaged in violent criminal enterprises. Some of the available evidence suggests that an array of satanic groups have served as intelligence agency fronts for mind control operations, which actually makes perfect sense, considering that if the goal is to severely traumatize children, then surely nothing compares to the seemingly outlandish stories told by those who have survived what has been dubbed satanic ritual abuse SRA. Verdier took note in his book of the fact that one of the most pronounced emotional experiences that a human being can undergo is having his or her life threatened. Threats of death are used as a basic tool by brainwashing communists. Even among them, however, this threat is used sparingly, for they know that humans quickly adapt to this type of threat, especially if it is repeatedly given but never carried out. In order to avoid this routinization of stressful emotional situations, they have been known to casually execute prisoners for the apparent effect it has on others. The actions that Verdier predictably attributed to brainwashing communists precisely mirror the stories that have been told repeatedly by self-described survivors of ritual abuse. These victims speak of receiving frequent death threats directed against both themselves and their family members. They speak also of having those threats reinforced through their forced witnessing of, and even participate in, the killing of others. There has been a tremendous amount of energy expended to discredit all such stories. At the forefront of the movement to deny the validity of the stories told by countless survivors is the False Memory Syndrome Foundation, a group led by a truly vile coalition of CIA-funded psychiatrists and accused, and in some cases, convicted pedophiles. Also playing a key role in the movement are Paul and Shirley Eberly, the authors of a purportedly authoritative book entitled The Politics of Child Abuse. The Ebrels book attempts to lay the blame for virtually all child abuse accusations and prosecutions on overzealous prosecutors, therapists and parents. That argument might be a little more credible, however, if the Eberleys themselves were not known to Los Angeles police as distributors of child pornography, a fact that media outlets conveniently and rather consistently ignore while touting the Eberleys as authorities in the field of child abuse. Contrary to conventional wisdom, claims of ritual abuse are certainly not a modern phenomenon. Such claims have actually been around for quite some time, and they were given legitimacy by no less an historical figure than Sigmund Freud. Over 100 years ago, Freud recognized that ritual abuse was likely the primary cause of the psychological problems that he observed in his female patients. Author Kevin Marin noted that Freud had commented on the marked similarity between what his patients told him and the accounts of the witchcraft confessions of the 16th century. 
In a letter to a colleague, written in January 1897, Freud pondered, but why did the devil who took possession of the poor things invariably abuse them sexually and in a loathsome manner? Why are their confessions under torture so like the communications made by my patients in psychological treatment? If Freud were alive today, he might well add, and why are the communications made by my patients a century ago so like the stories told to therapists today by survivors of SRA? Should this remarkable consistency spanning several centuries be attributed to some kind of recurring mass hysteria? Or can it best be explained by the fact that, as historians and the Chicago Tribune have noted, satanic cults have been documented in Europe and America as far back as the 1600s? Has there always been something dark and evil lurking in the shadows, only occasionally raising its head, at which times its existence is denied, its perpetrators cast as victims, and its real victims mocked and ridiculed? To ponder such a question, alas, requires calling into question some of our most fundamental beliefs about the nature of the world we live in, and that is a decidedly unsettling venture. Perhaps when viewed in the context of a covert, state-sponsored mind-control program, some readers can begin to understand not only why there might be those who are motivated to inflict appalling levels of abuse on some of America's children, but also why so much effort would be expended attempting to discredit claims of horrific abuse if the claims are in fact valid. Truth be told, the stories told by survivors of ritual abuse tend to be self-discrediting. One of the potential benefits, therefore, of cloaking mind-control activity in satanic rituals is that the operations are largely immune to disclosure. Even if an operation is uncovered, the stories told by the children tend to be so outlandish, so far removed from the world that we know, that the claims are easily cast aside as the product of a child's fertile imagination. In May 2000, however, a report commissioned by the United Kingdom's Department of Health concluded that satanic ritual abuse was not, as an earlier report ordered by the conservative government found in 1994, a myth. The Independent noted, in anticipation of the report's release, that a specially commissioned government report will this week conclude that satanic abuse does take place in Britain. It will say that its victims have suffered actual abuse and are not suffering from false memory syndrome. One of the primary authors of the controversial report was therapist Valerie Sinison, who reportedly had personally treated 126 survivors of ritualized abuse. According to a report in The Guardian, Sinison has said 46 of her patients claimed to have witnessed murder of children or adults during ritual abuse ceremonies that had involved up to 300 people at a time. Some 70% of the reported abuse was carried out by pedophiles and the rest by Satanists. The Independent added that 16 of the victims had also claimed they had seen induced abortions or babies killed. Sinison's research has led her to conclude that some children are born for the purpose of abuse and are not registered on birth certificates. That claim has been voiced repeatedly by U.S. victims as well. In a report from February 2000, The Independent revealed that Sinison had photographs documenting horrific injuries to children and the existence of ceremonial sites with the remains of mutilated animals. The same article noted that Scotland Yard had begun an investigation. It is unclear where that investigation led, as it is unclear what the official response was to the release of Sinison's study. Media outlets appear to have dropped the story just before the report was issued. Many readers of the press accounts that preceded the report's release were no doubt predisposed to dismiss Sinison and her fellow researchers as cranks. Where exactly, readers were left to ponder, was this alleged photographic evidence showing children with horrific injuries? And where is the evidence of ritual murders being performed? As it turns out, shockingly enough, such evidence is not that difficult to find. 
As hard as it may be to believe, especially for readers conditioned to think that all such stories are nothing but urban myths, photographic evidence of exactly the sort described by Sinison is being peddled all over the internet. But even with such compelling evidence being widely circulated, many will still be tempted to discount the stories told by the survivors of such abuse. Skeptics are advised to keep in mind the words of Detective Robert Samandel of the Chicago Police Department. It's difficult for us to believe such crimes are occurring, but they are, all over the United States, indeed, all over the world, as we shall see in the next chapter. In the early 1950s the CIA was looking for specially gifted subjects to study dissociative states, which could be induced and controlled to some extent with hypnosis and drugs. Arlene Tyner, writing in Probe Magazine, July-August 2000. Part 1. The Podocracy. From our comfortable seat in life, we never could have imagined that thousands of well-off adults, integrated and even cultured, find pleasure in seeing children tortured and killed. From a front-page editorial in Italy's Corriere della Sera, reprinted in the Irish Times, September 29, 2000. Chapter 1. From Brussels. The case of abduction and murder against Belgium's infamous pedophile Marc Dutru remains unresolved. He has not been brought to book for these heinous crimes. There appears to be a steel veil drawn over the facts at the highest level and no one is prepared to expose those involved in this blatant cover-up. The official answer is that a series of hysterical conspiracy theories forced investigators to search for pedophile networks, which didn't exist. But for observers of this debacle, that's exactly what didn't happen. Far from being investigated, leads pointing to a network seem to have been blocked or buried. Olenka Frankiel for the BBC, May 2, 2002. To the vast majority of Americans, the name Marc Dutru does not mean much. Drop that name in Belgium though and you are likely to elicit some very visceral reactions. Dutru, convicted along with his wife in 1989 for the rape and violent abuse of five young girls, the youngest of whom was just 11, now stands accused of being a key player in an international child prostitution and pornography ring whose practices included kidnapping, rape, sadistic torture, and murder. Dutru was sentenced in 1989 to 13 years for his crimes, but was freed after having served just three. This was in spite of the fact that, as prison governor Yvonne Stewart would later tell a parliamentary commission, a medical report described him as a perverse psychopath, an explosive mix. He was an evident danger to society. The man who turned Dutru loose on society, Justice Minister Melchior Waithlet, was rewarded with a prestigious appointment to serve as a judge at the European Court of Justice at The Hague. Shortly after Dutru's release, young girls began to disappear in the vicinity of some of his homes. Though technically unemployed and drawing welfare from the state, he nevertheless owned at least six houses and lived quite lavishly. His rather lucrative income appears to have been derived from trading in child sex slaves, child prostitution, and child pornography. Many of his houses appeared to stand vacant, though at least some of them were in fact used as torture and imprisonment centers where kidnapped girls were taken and held in underground dungeons. Some of Dutru's homes were used in this way for several years following his early release, with a growing body of evidence to indicate that fact to the police. Authorities nevertheless failed to act on the information, or acted on it in ways that implied either complete incompetence, according to most press reports, or police complicity in the operation, according to any sort of logic. Officials seemed to have routinely ignored tips that later proved accurate, including a report from Dutru's own mother that her son was holding girls prisoner in one of his houses. 
In addition, key facts were withheld from investigators working on the disappearances and lines of communication were unaccountably broken, inexcusably hindering the investigation. Police did search one of Dutroux's homes on no less than three separate occasions over the course of the investigation. On at least two of those occasions, two of the missing girls were being held in heinous conditions, imprisoned in a custom-built dungeon in the basement. Nevertheless, according to The Guardian, the police searches came up empty, even though the investigating officers reported hearing children's voices on one occasion. It was not until August 13, 1996, four years after the disappearances began, that authorities arrested Dutroux, along with his wife, an elementary school teacher, a lodger, a policeman, and a man the Guardian described as an associate with political connections, elsewhere identified as Jean-Michel Nihal, a Brussels businessman and nightclub owner. One of those taken into custody, Michel Liliev, described in a May 2002 BBC report as a drug addict and petty thief, reportedly told his interrogators that at least some of the girls abducted by the ring were kidnapped to order for someone else. This was just one of many statements by suspects and witnesses that would later be dismissed by Belgian officials. Two days after the arrests, police again searched Dutroux's home and discovered the soundproof dungeon torture center. As CNN reported, three years earlier, police ignored tips from an informant who said Dutroux was building secret cellars to hold girls before selling them abroad. In addition, in 1995, the same informant had told police that Dutroux had offered an unidentified third man the equivalent of $3,000 to $5,000 to kidnap girls. Incredibly, it was later reported by The Guardian that police actually had in their possession a videotape of the dungeon being constructed. Belgian police could have saved the lives of two children who were allegedly murdered by the pedophile Marc Dutroux if they had watched a video seized from his home which showed him building their hidden cell. The tape had been seized in one of the earlier searches. At the time of the final search, two 14-year-old girls were found imprisoned in the dungeon, chained and starving. They described to police how they had been used as child prostitutes and in the production of child pornography videos. More than 300 such videos were taken into custody by the police. On August 17, 1996, the story got grimmer as police dug up the bodies of two eight-year-old girls at another of Dutroux's homes. It would later be learned that the girls had been kept in one of Dutroux's dungeons for nine months after their abductions, during which time they were repeatedly tortured and sexually assaulted, all captured on videotape. The girls were then left to slowly starve to death. Alongside of their decimated corpses was the body of Bernard Weinstein, a former accomplice of Dutroux who had occupied one of the houses for several years. Weinstein had been buried alive. A few weeks later, two more girls were found buried under concrete at yet another of the Dutroux properties. Autopsy reports suggest they were drugged and then buried alive. By that time, ten people connected to the case were reportedly in custody. As the body count mounted, the outrage of the Belgian people grew. They demanded to know why this man, dubbed the Belgian Beast, had been released after having served such an absurdly short sentence and they demanded to know why, as evidence had continued to mount and girls had continued to disappear, the police had chosen to do nothing. How many girls, they wanted to know, had been killed due to this inaction? Adding further fuel to the fire, as a Los Angeles Times report revealed, were claims by a highly regarded children's activist, Marie Francebot, that the Justice Ministry is sitting on a politically sensitive list of customers of pedophile videotapes. The same report noted, the affair has become further clouded by the discovery of a motorcycle that reportedly matches the description of one used in the 1991 assassination of prominent Belgian businessman and politician André Coules. 
Michelle Berlet, the head prosecutor on the pedophile case, meanwhile, has publicly declared that the investigation can be thoroughly pursued only without political interference. Several years ago, Berlet was removed from the highly charged Cools case, which remains unsolved. A report in Time magazine alluded to murky links between the Dutru operation and organized crime figures. Mark Verwilgen, the chief investigating magistrate on the case, stated the case more bluntly, for me, the Dutru affair is a question of organized crime. Also mentioned in the Time article was the use of secret underground tunnels, not unlike those described by children a decade earlier at the infamous McMartin preschool. Outrage continued to grow as more arrests were made and evidence of high-level government and police complicity continued to emerge. One of Dutru's accomplices, businessman Jean-Michel Nihal, confessed to organizing an orgy at a Belgian chateau that had been attended by government officials, a former European commissioner, and a number of law enforcement officers. A Belgian senator noted, quite accurately, that such parties were part of a system which operates to this day and is used to blackmail the highly placed people who take part. According to the BBC, Nihal has brazenly claimed, I am the monster of Belgium, he has all but dared the state to prosecute him, claiming that he is beyond the reach of the law because he has information that, if made public, would bring the government and the entire state down. In September 1996, 23 suspects, at least nine of whom were police officers, were detained and questioned about their possible complicity in the crimes and or their negligence in investigating the case. As the Los Angeles Times noted in a very brief, two-sentence report, the detainments were the latest indication that police in the southern city of Charleroi may have helped cover up the alleged crimes of Mark Dutroux. The arrests followed raids on the police offices' homes and on the headquarters of the Charleroi police force and were based on information supplied by police inspector Georges Zico, who had already been charged as an accomplice. Three magistrates had also reportedly been interrogated by police investigators. Just days before the arrests, police had also arrested five suspects in the Cools assassination, including a former regional government minister named Alain van der Biest. Strangely enough, the News Telegraph reported that police investigating the Cools murder in 1991 have been given helpful leads by some of those arrested in the Dutroux case. The Telegraph also noted that Cools had promised shocking revelations before his death. On October 14, 1996 came the straw that broke the camel's back, Jean-Marc Connerot, who had been serving as the investigating judge on the Dutroux case, was dismissed by the Belgian Supreme Court. Connerot was viewed by the people as something of a rarity, a public official, law enforcement officer who actually appeared to be pursuing a prosecution, rather than a cover-up. The News Telegraph described him as, the only figure in the judiciary who enjoys the nation's confidence. As the New York Times reported, Conrad became a national hero in August after saving two children from a secret dungeon kept by a convicted child rapist and ordering the inquiry that led to the discovery of the bodies of four girls kidnapped by a child pornography network. He had also arrested three men in 1994 as suspects in the Cools assassination, just before the case was transferred to the jurisdiction of another magistrate. A May 2002 BBC report revealed that, after Conorot's removal, a special team of police officers interviewing Regina Loof and the other ex-witnesses, as they were called, were the next to be sacked. The ex-witnesses were victims of the pedophile ring who had come forward to tell harrowing tales of their victimization. A woman named Regina Loof was the first of 11 such victims to be interviewed by police officials. Louf claimed that she had been victimized by the ring, which included her parents and her grandmother, from the time that she was a very young child. 
She described the operation in detail to authorities, supplying them with names, names that included senior judges, one of the country's most powerful politicians, now dead, and a very influential banker. According to Louf, the operation was big business, blackmail, there was a lot of money involved. Many of her victimizers, she said, were secretly filmed for blackmail purposes. Louf identified Michelle Nihal as a regular organizer of parties. These parties, she said, not only involved sex, they included sadism, torture and murder. She described in detail the murdered victims and how and where they were killed. The BBC reported that when police checked into Louf's claims, they were able to verify key elements of Regina's story and found that at least one murder that she says she witnessed matched an unsolved murder. Nevertheless, the same BBC report revealed that today in Belgium Regina Louf's reputation is destroyed. The prosecutor general of Liege, Anne Thilly, declares she's completely mad despite numerous statements from independent psychologists to the contrary. According to the judges now on the case, her testimony has been declared worthless and will not be presented in any trial of Dutroux or his associates. Conorat's removal from the Dutroux case fanned the smoldering flames of public outrage. As the Times reported, hundreds of thousands of people had petitioned the High Court to retain the judge. Adding yet more fuel to the fire, prosecutor Michel Berlet was claiming that evidence indicated a pedophile ring, composed of the wealthy and powerful, had been protected for 25 years. With the families of Dutroux's victims calling for a general strike, men and women all across the country walked away from their jobs in protest as railway workers and bus drivers shut down public transportation, bringing some cities to a virtual standstill. The Telegraph reported that, in Liege, firemen turned their hoses on the city's court building to symbolize the massive cleanup that was in order. On October 20, 1996, 350,000 citizens of the tiny nation of Belgium took to the streets of Brussels dressed all in white, demanding the reform of a system so corrupt that it would protect the abusers, rapists, torturers, and killers of children. The political fallout from the case ultimately brought about the resignation of Belgium's state police chief, interior minister, and justice minister, who became sacrificial lambs tossed to the outraged masses to avoid what could easily have exploded into a full-scale insurrection by the people, particularly after police incompetence allowed Dutroux to escape and remain at large for a brief time in April 1998. There were in fact calls from the people for the entire coalition government to step down. Months later, an opinion survey by Brussels Le Soir newspaper found that only one in five Belgians still had confidence in the federal government and in the nation's criminal justice system. As the Los Angeles Times reported in January 1998, the conviction remained stubbornly widespread that members of the upper crust, government ministers, the Roman Catholic Church, the court of King Albert II, belonged to child sex rings or protected them. The lingering distrust of the people was not alleviated by the fact that a parliamentary inquiry had identified, in April 1997, 30 officials who had, as the Times tactfully put it, failed to uncover Dutroux's misdeeds. Nearly a year later, none of them had yet suffered any repercussions. Additionally, at least 10 missing children suspected of having fallen prey to Dutroux's operation have never been found. Just a few months before the Parliamentary Commission issued its report on the Dutroux case, viewed by many as a shameless cover-up, the Telegraph reported, grim rumors have been circulating that a second pedophile network at least as appalling may have been operating in parallel to that said to involve Dutroux. The bodies of seven children were believed to have been hidden by the ring, which was thought could be linked to Dutroux through Michel Nihal. Two months after that, a man named Patrick de Rochette and three of his family members were arrested following the discovery of the body of a nine-year-old girl. 
rumors quickly began circulating linking that crime to Dutru as well. Like Dutru, Derosha had previously been convicted on multiple counts of child rape. He had been committed to a psychiatric institution from which he was released after just six weeks. Authorities quickly denied that there was any connection between the cases. In January 1998, however, The Telegraph reported, new evidence from a lawyer involved in the investigations blows a hole in previous police claims that there was no link between the cases involving the alleged child murderers Mark Dutru and Patrick DeRochette. Once again, the connection was said to be through Nihal. In April 1999, The Guardian weighed in with this report, the highly respected chairman of a parliamentary inquiry into the Dutru case claims that his commission's findings were muzzled by political and judicial leaders to prevent details emerging of complicity in the crimes, Mr. Verwilgen claims that senior political and legal figures refused to cooperate with the inquiry. He says magistrates and police were officially told to refuse to answer certain questions in what he describes as a characteristic smothering operation. As of May 2002, nearly six years after Dutru was taken into custody, his trial had yet to begin. Parents of victims continued to loudly shout of a cover-up, and the Telegraph was reporting that it was recently learned that scientific tests on 6,000 hairs found in the underground dungeon began only this year. Those tests, of course, could reveal how many victims passed through Dutru's chamber of horrors. Perhaps more importantly, they could also, as a BBC News report noted in January 2002, establish whether the girls had any other visitors. Anne Philly, the aforementioned Prosecutor General of Leech who dismissed as mad a key prosecution witness, has been quoted as saying, there was no need to get the hairs analyzed as no one else entered the cage. There was no network so there was no need to look for evidence of one. In any case, the hairs have all now been analyzed. Philly gave no indication of how she knew there was nothing to find before even bothering to look. And contrary to her claims, the BBC reported in May 2002 that the hairs had still not been analyzed, according to sources central to the investigation. Philly has also claimed the bodies recovered from Dutru's properties were too decomposed to test for DNA. The BBC though noted the autopsy states quite clearly that the bodies were not decomposed. Samples were taken. It is just that no one seems to know what has happened to the results. The January BBC report came on the heels of an interview that the imprisoned Dutru granted a Flemish journalist and a Belgian senator. Therein, Dutru was quoted as admitting, a network with all kinds of criminal activities really does exist. But the authorities don't want to look into it. He also acknowledged the existence of a well-grounded pedophile ring. I maintained regular contact with people in this ring. However, the law does not want to investigate this lead. Another lead that was never seriously investigated involved allegations of satanic cult involvement in the abductions. In 1996, police had found a note at Bernard Weinstein's home that led them to investigate the Abraxas organization and its high priestess, Dominique Kindermans. Some segments of the Belgian press speculated that the organization was a satanic cult that assisted in obtaining young girls for ritual sacrifices. If the Mark Dutru case were some kind of aberration, it would still be a disturbing story for the level of unspeakable corruption and depravity of the Belgian political and law enforcement establishment of which it speaks. Far more disturbing is the fact that it does not appear to be an isolated case at all. As 1999 drew to a close, the nation of Latvia was rocked by a child prostitution, child pornography scandal that reached to the very top of the political power structure. The case first broke in August, when police uncovered a massive operation involving as many as 2,000 severely abused children. 
When media reports began linking top Latvian officials to the case, a special parliamentary commission was assembled to investigate the emerging allegations. In February 2000, the chairman of the commission delivered a report to parliament linking the country's prime minister and justice minister, the director of the state revenue service, and a number of army and law enforcement officers to the case. A campaign was immediately begun to discredit the committee chairman, including allegations that he is tied to the former KGB, a classic case of redbaiting that enabled the allegations to be dismissed as communist propaganda. On November 27, 2002, The Guardian reported that many among Portugal's elite were linked to a pedophile ring as well. A scandal over a pedophile ring run from a state orphanage gripped Portugal yesterday as it threatened to engulf diplomats, media personalities and senior politicians. Photographs of unnamed senior government officials with young boys from Lisbon's Casa Pia orphanage were among the evidence reportedly available to police after they arrested a former orphanage employee called Carlos Silvino. One revelation in the case was that systematic sexual abuse of children at the home had allegedly been going on for more than 20 years and had been known to police and other authorities for most of that time. Teresa Costa Macedo, a former Secretary of State for Families, has said that she sent a dossier to police 20 years ago containing damning proof of the abuse, including photographs and eyewitness statements. The information was not acted upon, and, for her trouble, Macedo became the victim of a campaign of threats and intimidation. In June 2003, The Independent reported that police at first denied her reports existed, but then later produced them. Macedo has testified before Parliament that the former president, Antonio Ramal Haines, the former foreign secretary, Jamie Garcia, and elements within the police all knew of the ongoing abuse. An official report claims that, among the children still living at Casa Pia, at least 128 had been subjected to sexual abuse. Many are deaf and dumb. Countless other victims have passed through the facility over the last 30 years. Among those detained or questioned in the case were Carlos Cruz, known in Portugal as Mr. Television, Manuela Brantz, a former director of Casa Pia, Joao Ferreira Diniz, a doctor at Casa Pia, Jorge Rito, a former ambassador to UNESCO, Hugo Marcal, Carlos Silvino's former attorney, Eduardo Ferro Rodriguez, Portugal's Socialist Party leader, television talk show host Herman José, and Paulo Pedroso, a former labor minister. A follow-up report in The Independent noted that Casa Pia, founded by a police superintendent, first came under scrutiny 20 years ago when a young inmate died. Officials found the home's doors open all night and youngsters in a cruising area for male prostitutes. Four children aged between 8 and 12, missing for a fortnight, were found in a luxury flat in nearby Casque owned by a diplomat. That diplomat was Jorge Rito. It is now alleged that Silvino, an employee and former resident of Casa Pia, acted for years to procure young boys for rich and powerful pedophiles, including Rito. Adolescent witnesses have claimed on Portuguese television that they were offered enticements and then raped and recruited for sex parties with powerful friends. Others, now adult, have told of chilling experiences long suppressed. A Portuguese organization calling itself Innocence in Danger has been working for years to publicize the problem of child abuse and child abductions in the country, but have been unable to penetrate what they describe as a media blackout. As of February 2003, a campaign was underway in Scotland to unseal records that have been sealed for 100 years under special order. The records concern the activities of Thomas Hamilton, a notorious child molester, murderer who was credited with killing 16 schoolchildren and a teacher, and then himself, in 1996. 
One police report sealed under the order concerns Thomas Hamilton's activities at a summer camp in Loch Lomond in 1991, five years before the shootings, and allegedly links Hamilton to figures in the Scottish establishment, including two senior politicians and a lawyer, according to The Guardian. A report in Scotland's Sunday Herald from March 2003 revealed that 106 documents had been sealed. These included a letter connected to Hamilton, which was sent by George Robertson, currently head of NATO, to Michael Forsyth, who was then Secretary of State for Scotland, as well as correspondence relating to Thomas Hamilton's alleged involvement in Freemasonry. A Deputy Justice Minister, Michael Matheson, was quoted in the article questioning the official justification for sealing the documents. The explanation to date about the 100-year rule was that it was put in place to protect the interests of children named in the Central Police Report. How can that explanation stand when children aren't named? On September 29, 2000, the Irish Times reported that yet another pedophile network had surfaced. Eight people were arrested in Italy and three in Russia, and police said 1,700 people were being investigated in Italy. The images traded by this ring were divided into several categories. The most gruesome, police said, was coded Necros Pedo, in which children were raped and tortured to death. And so it is that we first confront the most disturbing of topics, snuff films, which most people assume do not actually exist. As recently as February 1999, the New York Post assured readers that snuff films are the stuff of urban legend. How did this legend get started? No one knows. The unfortunate truth though is that snuff films do actually exist, and they likely have existed for as long as film has existed, though they were not always known by that name. According to the Post, the term, snuff, was actually coined during the Charles Manson case, when press reports repeated a rumor that the Manson family had filmed home movies of the brutal slayings. Other reports hold that the term was coined in 1976 by a writer for the New York Times who was in need of a phrase to describe reports of murders following sexual activity being captured on film. In the late 1970s, as Carl Raschke noted in Painted Black, the Texas House Select Committee on Child Pornography disclosed that investigators probing leads to organized crime in Houston, Dallas, and other major cities found that slave auctions for 16- and 17-year-old boys were routinely held in Mexico. Some of the boys were featured in brutal snuff or slasher movies. Rashke also quotes from a study by U.S. mental health professionals that claims that a child from Mexico can be packaged, delivered, and sold deep within the United States in a short time, and that many are purchased solely for the purpose of killing. In Enslaved, Gordon Thomas reported that, at the start of the year, 1991, Britain's Scotland Yard was continuing to investigate reports that up to 20 children in London had been murdered last year in snuff films and the videotapes sold on the continent. Journalist Nick Davies, writing for The Guardian in November 2000, revisited that investigation, which was centered on a group of British pedophiles living in Amsterdam. The investigation revealed that the men were running gay brothels that were essentially fronts for trafficking underage boys, many purchased from the streets of economically ravaged Eastern Europe, and others collected from the streets of London. Prominent among the group of pedophiles were a man named Alan Williams, known as the Welsh Witch, and another named Warwick Spinks, who according to Davies, pioneered the trafficking of boys as young as ten. The men used the boys in the production of child pornography and, according to several witnesses, in the production of snuff films. Davies wrote, not just once but repeatedly, evidence had come to the attention of police in England and the Netherlands that, for pleasure and profit, some of the exiled pedophiles in Amsterdam had murdered boys in front of the camera. 
Indeed, witnesses had independently given descriptions of snuff films that were remarkably consistent in the details of the types of torture used and the manner of death, though the descriptions of the victim and the filming location differed, indicating that a number of such films had been made. One witness claimed to have seen five such films. In the fall of 1998, British detectives flew to Amsterdam to investigate a particularly detailed account provided by a witness. The investigators had in their possession a detailed description of the apartment where the witness had viewed the tape, the name of the owner of the apartment and videotape, the name of the man who committed the murder, a detailed description of events on the tape, and the first name and approximate age of the victim. With all that in hand, says Davies, the detectives hit a wall. Dutch police said it was not enough to warrant launching any sort of an investigation. By that time, investigators had been hearing accounts of the snuff films for nearly eight years. At one point, they had recruited an undercover officer to pose as a child abuser and befriend Warwick Spinks, who acknowledged to the officer that he was actively involved in trafficking boys. He also revealed that he knew some people who were involved in making snuff movies and how they did it was, they only sold them in limited editions, made 10 copies or something, 10 very rich customers in America, who paid $5,000 each or something like that. There is no indication that any thorough investigation was ever conducted or that any arrests were ever made. In September 2002, the Chicago Sun-Times carried a brief report of two brothers who were arrested and charged with possessing an enormous collection of child pornography. Seized from the brothers were 5,000 photographic images, along with about 100 videotapes and 8mm films. Among this evidence were images of young girls apparently tortured, raped and killed. The American media has shown no inclination to shine any additional light on the case. An account of the recent Italian case carried by The Guardian affirmed the existence of snuff films. Police have discovered a massive international pedophile network selling violent child pornography videos to clients in Italy, the US and Germany. Authorities are trying to identify 5,000 people who are suspected of attempting to purchase the videos, some of which appear to contain images of children being tortured and murdered. The UK's Independent, in a follow-up published in November 2000, also confirmed that the seized materials included child snuff films. Horrified investigators gathered images of more than 2,000 children who were filmed while being abused, raped, and killed. By that time, close to 1,500 people had been charged in the case, but not, as The Guardian noted, those in high places who are believed to form a pedophile lobby. As in the Belgian, Latvian, and Portuguese cases, there were indications in the Italian case of high-level complicity and a strong belief among the people that the facts of the case were being covered up. And as with the other cases, the Independent reported that the magistrate heading up the inquiry provoked a furore by denouncing a pedophile lobby supported by politicians which he said openly obstructed the investigators and worked to prevent tougher sanctions for the consumers of child pornography. The New York Times reported in March 1997 that there is growing public indignation in France and elsewhere about the recurrent reports of kidnapping, rape or incest involving the very young. The same Times report revealed that French police had detained more than 250 people and confiscated some 5,000 videocassettes in conjunction with an investigation into a massive child pornography ring. Those detained by police were described as mainly married professionals. A dozen of them soon turned up dead, allegedly by their own hand. The BBC filed a brief report on a 1996 case that was otherwise almost completely ignored by the English-language press. Mexican police broke up an international child pornography ring based in the resort of Acapulco, which they said had at least 4,000 clients in the United States, emphasis added. 
A UN envoy investigating the case said that the child pornography sometimes involved babies of less than one month old. In June 1997, the News Telegraph spoke of over 800 French homes being raided and 204 suspects being taken into custody. Among those detained were more than 30 teachers and a number of priests, as well as the deputy mayor of the town of St. Mihail. By the end of the week, four had committed suicide, including a school headmaster. Three years later, the BBC filed a very brief report noting that a verdict was due in the trial of more than 60 people accused of possessing child pornography. One of the judges hearing the case said examining the video evidence made him feel physically sick. In a familiar refrain, it was reported that the French courts have been accused of attacking the easy targets, porn consumers, rather than producers and distributors. And one children's rights group has alleged that senior public figures were among those investigated, but their cases were dropped before coming to court. In 1998, another large-scale international ring was discovered operating out of the Netherlands and Berlin, Germany. The New York Times reported that investigators called the case nauseating, in that images of abuse of even babies and infants were peddled via the Internet and other media. Police discovered voluminous records of what appear to be clients and suppliers from countries including Israel, Ukraine, Britain, Russia and the United States. The ring was first uncovered when a key member was found dead in Italy. According to the Irish Times, he was murdered by another member of the ring. His apartment in the Dutch town of Zontfort was found to contain thousands of digital images stored on computer disks, as well as hundreds of addresses of suspected suppliers and clients, according to the New York Times. The images shocked even veteran sex crimes investigators, one of whom stated that the seized evidence left him speechless. It looks like the perpetrators are not dealing with human beings but with objects. The BBC reported in June 1999 that two unnamed German men had gone on trial, accused of running a child pornography ring in Germany, Poland and the Czech Republic. The pair, along with at least 11 identified but unindicted accomplices, made video recordings of the gang sexually abusing children between the ages of 3 and 14 since 1993. A large but unspecified quantity of videos, photography, magazines and CD-ROMs containing child pornography were confiscated. Also noted was a possible connection to the Dutru case, there have been cases of Slovak children being taken to Vienna to make pornographic films. The Belgian pedophile Mark Dutru was a regular visitor to one Slovak town. In September 1998, another ring had been raided, one that the BBC described as a larger and more sinister pedophile network called Wonderland. The San Jose Mercury News reported police in 22 states and 13 foreign countries conducted coordinated raids aimed at breaking up an internet child pornography ring. The ring involves as many as 200 people around the world who exchanged over the internet thousands of sexually explicit images of children as young as 18 months. The Independent later reported that the ring shared pictures of children being abused, in some cases live via webcam broadcasts over the internet. The raids included homes in Australia, Austria, Belgium, Finland, France, Germany, Italy, Norway, Portugal and Sweden, according to the New York Times, which added that several dozen people were arrested, but officials said they expected more than 100 to be charged. The Independent later reported that 107 suspects were ultimately arrested. The Mercury News implied that that was only the tip of the iceberg, the ring actually extends into 47 countries. The case was described by a British official as stomach-churning. The Times reported, Wonderland Club members are believed to have posed their own children for pictures. In other cases, parents may have taken money to let their children be used. 
The Guardian reported that over 1,250 children were featured in the photos and videos, many of whom suffered appalling injuries and were seen sobbing uncontrollably as they were being sexually violated. The Independent added that the victimized children were mostly under the age of 10. A BBC report held that the combined raids resulted in the seizure of more than 750,000 computer images of children. A detective superintendent with the British National Crime Squad called these images disgusting and added that the behavior that has been carried out is absolutely appalling. The BBC also took note of the fact that, while ignored by the American press, Wonderland originated in the United States. Among the scores of U.S. homes raided in connection with the case, one yielded a database of more than 100,000 sexual photographs of naked boys and girls. Interestingly enough, the Times also noted that another raid, in Missouri, turned up a cache of weapons as well as child pornography in a heavily fortified trailer, illustrating once again, as did the Dutru case, the close ties between organized pedophilia and other terrorist assaults against society. As with the earlier raids in Europe, a rash of suicides followed the Wonderland arrests. By October 24, 1998, the Mercury News was reporting that no fewer than four of the 34 American suspects had killed themselves. These included a retired Air Force pilot, a microbiologist at the University of Connecticut, and a computer consultant in Colorado. In the UK, the Wonderland raids, dubbed Operation Cathedral, resulted in the indictments of eight suspects. One of the eight turned up dead four months later, another alleged suicide. The other seven were given ridiculously light sentences in February 2001 for their complicity in inflicting unfathomable abuse on countless children. Sentences ranged from 12 to 30 months. Just a few weeks before the sentences were handed down, The Guardian was reporting that police today arrested 13 suspected pedophiles in the largest ever UK operation against child pornography. Once again, a massive amount of appalling evidence was seized, with most of the material featuring scenes of children being raped and sexually abused. The Independent reported in February 2001, detectives working on the Wonderland case discovered that many of the pedophiles were also members of other child pornography groups. One of the groups most closely tied to Wonderland was a ring known as the Orchid Club, which had been exposed by a 1996 investigation in San Jose, California. That investigation had led to the indictment of 16 men on charges of conspiring to produce and exchange child pornography. Members of the club were identified in at least nine states and three foreign countries. By the time of the Wonderland raids, the Mercury News was able to report that the purported ringleader of the Orchid Club and 12 others either have pleaded guilty or have been convicted in connection with that case. Their crimes included recruiting young relatives and friends of their own children to be molested and photographed. The club was also, like Wonderland, involved in real-time exploitation of children on the Internet. Club members were able to send in requests and have them acted out on live feeds. The club also held a pedophile summit at which members traded stories about pre-teen girls they had molested and photographed in sexually explicit poses. The summit was held, appropriately enough, on April 20th, the birth date of Adolf Hitler and a significant occult holiday. In late March 2001, yet another interlinked global pedophile network was exposed. That month, The Independent reported, U.S. authorities announced the arrest of four American citizens for involvement in an international child porn ring called Blue Orchid. The Los Angeles Times added further details. The United States and Russia have shut down a Moscow-based international pornography ring that used the Internet to sell videotapes of children engaged in sexual acts. 
These tapes were said to sell for between $200 and $300. As an Associated Press release revealed, police seized some 600 videotapes, 200 digital video discs and many boxes of photographs. Video duplication equipment and sales and shipping records were also seized, leading to criminal inquiries in 24 nations. Many of the tapes were bought by people in the United States. Others went to Germany, Britain, France, Denmark, China, Kuwait, Mexico and scores of other countries. The Times reported that nine people had been arrested and 15 search warrants had been issued in the case. The AP report noted that four of those arrests were in Russia, where two suspects, alas, had committed suicide. The ring was also said by the Times to offer what were cryptically referred to as custom-made videos for the hefty price of $5,000 each. The contents of these videos were not revealed, but it was revealed that the prevalence of child pornography has increased dramatically with the growth of the Internet. There are approximately 100,000 websites worldwide associated with child pornography. This point was reinforced the next day when the British press reported police raids on yet another pedophile ring. A report in The Guardian held more than 30 people, including a man working for a national youth organization, were arrested yesterday in Don raids on the homes of suspected pedophiles. Once again being sold and traded were images which showed children being abused. A report on the case in The Independent quoted a law enforcement spokesman as revealing that those arrested included members of some interesting professions, though the source demurred from revealing what those professions might be. The official did say that they had a disturbing scenario of one or two juveniles who have been caught in this way. One of them appears to be a 13-year-old boy. The police acknowledged that the arrested boy was also a potential victim and would be treated in that light, which seems rather obvious. Nevertheless, a follow-up to the story that The Independent ran in May held that the boy had become one of the youngest people to be listed on the sex offenders register. The next month, The Guardian carried a report on Eric Franklin Rosser, accused child pornographer, one of the FBI's ten most wanted criminals, and a former keyboardist for John Cougar Mellencamp's band. According to the report, investigators believe Rosser's material is among pornography circulated by a British pedophile ring. More than 1,800 members are thought to belong to a club called Teen Boys. Its website features boys aged around 12. Teen Boys is considered bigger than the notorious Wonderland Club. In September 2001, the Scottish Daily Record reported that a Salvation Army couple working on a British Army base have been arrested in a massive pedophile crackdown. Seized from the couple's home were some 400 videotapes, computers, discs, photographs and other material. Images of children as young as two have been found. The same report claimed a massive vice probe into kiddie porn in the USA would expose some of the biggest names in Hollywood as pedophiles. A federal investigation, codenamed Operation Avalanche, has already resulted in over 100 arrests, and the U.S. Department of Justice say there will be hundreds more, including celebrities. Lori Rabjohns, identified as a Justice Department spokeswoman, was quoted as saying, These are people who appear upstanding members of society, we're talking doctors, lawyers, and celebrities. The investigation came about as a result of a raid on the Fort Worth, Texas home of Thomas and Janice Reedy, who had been operating a business called Landslide Productions, which offered child pornography for sale over the Internet. The Rita's website, according to The Independent, functioned as a portal to more than 5,700 websites with names such as Child Rape and Cyber Lolita. The Reedy's had made millions of dollars from their child porn business, which employed more than a dozen staff, including a customer service representative and a receptionist. 
This financial empire was built with money raised from the torture, rape and sexual abuse of children as young as two. The raid on the Rita's home, conducted in September 1999, unexpectedly yielded a database of the names and addresses of a reported 75,000 subscribers around the world. According to a report carried in February 2002 by Tech TV, more than 35,000 of those individual subscribers were in the United States. Nevertheless, only 100 arrests had been made at that time of the report, a number that remained unchanged in the months after the initial arrests. By early 2003, the story had dropped out of sight with little indication that there would be any further arrests, despite Chief Postal Inspector Kenneth Weaver's earlier insistence that the initial arrests were just the tip of the iceberg. More than 7,000 subscribers to the site were British citizens. Their names, addresses and credit card information were provided by the FBI to British authorities, who launched an investigation paralleling Operation Avalanche that was dubbed Operation Orr. As in America, only a few of the known offenders have thus far been arrested. Included among those questioned by police have been television personality Matthew Kelly and legendary guitarist Pete Townsend. Rushing to Townshend's defense was the Nation columnist Alexander Cockburn, who earlier played a prominent role in denouncing the McMartin prosecutions. In a posting on his Counterpunch website from February 2003, Cockburn grossly misrepresented the nature of the charges against Townsend. He charged that, according to the Supreme Court, porn encompasses even clothed images of children if they are construed as arousing. Child means anyone under 18. Cockburn labeled Townshend's arrest absurd and claimed that if you have a photo of a kid in a bath on your hard drive and the prosecutor says you were looking at it with lust in your heart, then that is tantamount to sexually molesting an actual kid in an actual bath. Cockburn was clearly trying to convey the impression that Townsend and others are the innocent victims of overzealous prosecutors. It will be recalled, however, that the images that the landslide website was offering to Townsend and other subscribers were images of the torture, rape and sexual abuse of children as young as two. Those are not the types of images that would easily be mistaken for innocent pictures of a child taking a bath. Also included among the 7,272 suspects in the United Kingdom, according to The Observer, were hundreds of child welfare professionals, including police officers, care workers and teachers, all of whom were identified as extremely high-risk pedophiles. Particularly well represented on the list were law enforcement personnel. Investigators now believe as many as 90 police officers have so far been identified from an initial trawl of 200 of the British names found in the U.S. Many of the other suspects work in other sensitive professions, often linked to the criminal justice system. On November 4, 2002, The Independent carried a brief report that noted that virtually all of the British suspects had yet to be investigated despite the police having their details for four months. All the information on the suspects was sent in July 2002 to the 51 police departments throughout Great Britain, but, despite detailed intelligence, nearly all of the suspected pedophiles remain at large. No mention was made of why it took U.S. authorities nearly three years to get the information to their U.K. counterparts. In January 2003, the Sunday Herald announced that the police inquiry which plans to arrest a further 7,000 men across the U.K. is set to end in disaster with many suspects walking free. Detective Chief Inspector Bob McLaughlin, the former head of Scotland Yard's pedophile unit, told the Sunday Herald, the lack of urgency in making arrests will lead to suspects destroying evidence before they are arrested. McLaughlin also told the Herald that claims made by police chiefs and the government that they are prioritizing pedophile crime are nothing but smoke and mirrors. 
The final line of the Sunday Herald article revealed that, according to police, there were enough rich and famous operation or suspects to fill newspaper front pages for an entire year. According to the Register and the Sunday Times, which reportedly obtained, but did not publish, all 7,272 names, the list of suspects included at least 20 senior executives, services personnel from at least five military bases, GPs, university academics and civil servants. Also on the list were a famous newspaper columnist, along with a songwriter for a legendary pop band and a member of another chart-topping 1980s cult pop group, along with an official with the Church of England. It is unlikely that any of those suspects, nor the high-profile former Labour cabinet minister mentioned by the Sunday Herald, will ever be prosecuted. In August 2003, Scotland on Sunday reported that the Scottish arm of the massive internet child pornography investigation operation OR has ended, without anybody being charged with sex abuse. An unnamed Scottish police chief said that that outcome would not trouble us if we thought that all the men who were looking at child porn on their computer were just sad creeps who did not pose a risk to the children in their lives, but that is not the conclusion that was drawn from every raid. To the contrary, what investigators repeatedly encountered was evidence that suspects were engaged in the ongoing abuse of children. In March 2002, Knight Ritter carried a report that stated, Postal inspectors, the FBI and Canadian authorities have broken up an underground network of adults who traded pornographic videos of children, sometimes their own, being brutally beaten. At the time that the report was filed, 10 perpetrators had already been convicted and more arrests are expected in the ongoing investigation of what authorities described as a unique case. According to Raymond Smith, head of the Postal Service's child exploitation investigations, we've seen organized networks of sadomasochistic beatings with adults before, but this is the first time we've seen it with children. In an apparent attempt to downplay the appalling behavior uncovered by the investigation, a postal inspector named Michael Galuppo described the ring as a bizarre group of people obsessed with spanking children for sexual gratification. Spanking, it should be noted, is a rather odd way to describe what in fact were brutally sadistic beatings involving whips, hairbrushes, canes and wooden paddles. The abuse was so severe that at least one of the children depicted on videotape suffered permanent disfigurement from beatings that investigators said went on for years. Among those convicted in the case were a middle school teacher, a nurse and former Boy Scout leader, and a former Sunday school teacher. Just months later, in August 2002, The Independent reported that U.S. authorities had announced the discovery of a despicable child pornography ring stretching to Britain and continental Europe, in which parents sexually abused their children and distributed photographs of them over the Internet. Robert Bonner, the customs commissioner, said he was particularly shocked to see the degree of collusion by parents. If this isn't unusual, God help us, I've rarely seen crimes as despicable and repugnant. Of the 16 suspects arrested in the U.S., one committed suicide shortly after being arrested. These cases were not, of course, in any way, unique or unusual, as veteran customs and postal service officials, with experience investigating cases of child exploitation, should know. In September 2003, the International Herald Tribune carried a report from Berlin concerning an international police investigation that had uncovered an immense child pornography ring involving 26,500 suspects who swapped illegal images on the Internet in 166 countries. More than 500 homes in Germany were searched and hundreds of computers were seized, along with tens of thousands of CD-ROMs, diskettes, and videotapes. One seized image showed a baby of four months being abused. 
A statement issued by the German Interior and Justice Ministries warned that many of the suspects, a number of whom are reportedly teachers and police officials, are extremely dangerous pedophiles and are from all walks of life. About 800 of those suspects reside in the United States. Kurt Becker, the Justice Minister for the German state of Saxony-Anhalt, called for tougher laws to contend with the growing market for child pornography. He also directly challenged the notion that mere possession of such images is largely a victimless crime. Every case of child pornography is a document of the sexual abuse of a child, Becker noted, and every look at that image kills a child's soul. A January 2003 Sunday Herald article revealed that police investigators had discovered that images of Fred West abusing one of his children are among child pornography available for downloading from the Internet. It is unclear whether the child was West's murdered daughter Heather. Fred West was one of the UK's most notorious and most prolific serial killers. Shortly after being charged with 12 counts of murder, he died while in police custody, allegedly by his own hand. Like Dutru, West had constructed a torture chamber in his cellar where his victims were filmed being raped, tortured, murdered and mutilated. The remains of nine of his victims, minus some missing parts, were discovered buried under his house and in his yard. While we are on the subject of serial killers, the Irish Times carried the following report in July 1998. Police suspect a series of gruesome gay hate killings in the Sydney region could be the work of a serial killer whose victims might be linked through a notorious pedophile ring. The latest mutilation murder was that of Australia's longest-serving mayor, Frank Arkell, aged 68, who was bludgeoned to death in his flat and who had previously faced 29 child sex charges. In the past few months two other men, one a convicted child sex offender, were attacked in their homes in similar circumstances and also suffered horrific injuries. Arkell, the former Lord Mayor of Wollongong, 50 miles south of Sydney, was a key witness in a royal commission into police corruption which uncovered a network of pedophiles. Those serial killers sure come in handy sometimes. Bruno Tagliaferro, a Charleroi scrap metal merchant who knew Dutru, claimed to know something about the car in which Julie and Melissa were kidnapped. But he was soon found dead, apparently of a heart attack. His wife Fabienne Jopart refused to accept the verdict and arranged for his body to be exhumed. Samples sent to the USA for analysis showed he'd been poisoned. Soon after, her teenage son found her dead at home in her bed, her mattress smoldering. Publicly it was declared suicide, or an accident. There have been 20 such unexplained deaths connected with Dutru, Olenka Frankiel for the BBC, May 2, 2002. Chapter 2, To Washington. Several prosecutors, policemen and crucial eyewitnesses have committed suicide. Important evidence has also disappeared. So maybe Dutru is being protected from on high. What other explanation can there be for such a disgraceful chain of events? Andrew Osborne in The Guardian, January 25, 2002. While the size and scope of pedophile rings have grown rapidly in recent years, America, as it turns out, has long been a nation whose laws were friendly to purveyors of child pornography. It was just 25 years ago, in 1978, that the very first federal statute on child pornography was passed into law. While forbidding production and sale, the statute placed no restrictions at all on the possession or trade of such materials. New laws enacted in 1984 forbid the trade of child pornography regardless of whether any money changed hands, though possession remained legal. 
In fact, as recently as 1990, private possession of child pornography was legal in 44 of the 50 states, despite the inescapable fact that all such materials were, by necessity, illegally produced and or illegally obtained. Technology has for some time now played a key role in greatly expanding the availability of child pornography. The Polaroid camera, for example, eliminated the need for child pornographers to have access to complicit photo labs. Home video cameras did likewise for moving images. Personal computers, digital cameras, webcams, scanners, and, most notably, the Internet, have vastly expanded the reach of child pornography networks. In the age of the Internet, child pornography is a booming business. The Los Angeles Times noted in December 1999 that the number of investigations for Internet-related child pornography is soaring. The FBI launched 1,125 such inquiries this year, more than twice as many as last year. In the wake of this rising tide, the U.S. Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals issued a ruling on December 17, 1999 that struck a serious blow to the prosecution of child pornography cases. As the Times reported, the decision stipulated, the government cannot prohibit computer-generated sexual images that only appear to be pictures of children. A later report noted that appeals court judge Donald Malloy had stated that the First Amendment bars the government from criminalizing the generation of images of fictitious children engaged in imaginary but explicit sexual conduct. As a result of the court's decision, prosecutors were thereafter barred from bringing virtual child pornography cases in California and the eight other western states within the jurisdiction of the U.S. Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. As critics have noted, graphics technology now available to the general public is so sophisticated that it is virtually impossible to determine if an image has been digitally altered, and therefore if any actual children were involved in the generation of the image. U.S. Justice Department lawyers argued that very point, noting that the government may find it impossible in many cases to prove that a pornographic image is of a real child. Any good defense attorney, in other words, could raise reasonable doubt as to the authenticity of an image. It could in fact be argued that all such computer images only appear to be pictures of children. Computer images are not in fact photos, but are digital computer files that display as a facsimile of the original photo. A sound legal argument could be made that all digitally transferred and displayed child pornography is therefore legal, as it does not represent real children. That should come as great news to the international child pornography networks, given that the United States is their number one market. According to investigative author Gordon Thomas, the majority of child pornography produced worldwide is targeted at the U.S., where by the early 1990s it was already a $3 billion a year business and growing. Thomas claims that, according to law enforcement figures, over 22 million copies of child pornography videos were sold or rented in the U.S.In 1991. He also writes that much of that pornographic material is produced domestically, where it is part of the largest segment of movie making in the United States. Jan Hollingsworth concurs with Thomas's figures, describing child pornography as a $3 billion per year U.S. industry that grows twice that worldwide. It is bigger than Disney. Much bigger. Speaking of Disney, Thomas notes that child porn videos are frequently trafficked internationally by deceptively packaging them as Disney videos. Strangely enough, the first man to benefit from the Ninth Circuit Court decision was Patrick J. Naughton. You may remember him as the executive with the Walt Disney Co., who ran one of the company's kid-friendly websites. Naughton was arrested and later tried on child pornography charges. He was convicted on December 16, just one day before the decision was handed down in the case before the circuit court. 
Within hours of the appeals court ruling, Naughton was released by federal prosecutors on $100,000 bail. Despite the fact that he was, as the Times acknowledged, convicted of possessing pictures of actual children, a decision was made to release him until the impact of the court's ruling can be sorted out, illustrating the significant undermining of existing law that could result from the circuit court ruling. On January 22, 2001, the U.S. Supreme Court agreed to hear an appeal of the case. In April 2002, the High Court rendered its decision, upholding the ruling of the lower court. By doing so, the highest court in the land extended the ban on prosecutions of virtual child pornography to all 50 states. As the LA Times reported on April 17, 2002, the ruling creates an immunity for a new generation of virtual pornographers who rely entirely on computer images. The Times noted that it was an unexpected move for the conservative court, describing the decision as a surprisingly strong defense of the right to free speech. The decision was, alas, not all that surprising, given that the Supreme Court has demonstrated in the past, most notably during the 2000 election debacle, its willingness to toss aside its alleged principles when the need arises. Noted by the Times once again was the concern among prosecutors that they will have a hard time proving that children portrayed on an Internet sex site, for example, are real children. The decision handed down by the Supreme Court, notably, does not answer that concern. Closely associated with child pornography is, of necessity, child abuse. It should be self-evident that all kids used in child pornography are abused children, their abuse recorded on film and tape for the depraved enjoyment of other child abusers. As Anne Houston, the director of the organization Childline Scotland, has said, every image of child abuse on the internet is a crime scene. Also closely associated with child pornography is the always controversial issue of missing children. There is considerable debate as to whether there is a problem in this country with missing children. Some claim that 200,000 or more children disappear without a trace every year. Others steadfastly maintain that numbers such as those are grossly inflated and that abduction of children by strangers with bad intent is actually quite rare. The problem is that nobody really knows for sure, since the FBI, America's compiler of crime statistics, does not bother to keep track. As the Los Angeles Times reported in July 2002, there is a lack of knowledge about the prevalence of a crime that historically has not been included in the federal government's Uniform Crime Report. Local agencies have only sporadically kept data. Many believe that the numbers are not compiled because the FBI does not want to know, or more accurately, the FBI does not want the American people to know, how many children disappear every year. What is known though is that reports of child abuse have skyrocketed. Between 1963 and 1988, reported cases of child abuse rose from 150,000 to 2 million per year, a 1,300% increase in just a quarter century. Child abuse may in fact be the most prevalent crime in American society, and possibly the most significant as well, given that it provides the breeding ground for so much of the more visible crime plaguing Western culture. As Thomas reports, over 90% of the teenage prison population are now victims of child abuse and that population is growing rapidly. In the wake of that rising tide, the Los Angeles Times reported in March 2001 that President Bush's budget will trim a program aimed at preventing child abuse and cut some child care spending. A child abuse prevention program will see an 18% cut. Author and e-zine editor Robert Sterling has written of what he refers to as a pattern of trivialization of child molestation evidence that seems to characterize high-profile media stories. 
He points out, for instance, that in the highly publicized Woody Allen and Mia Farrow child custody case, all the attention was focused on Allen's illicit romance with Soon Yi Previn. Almost entirely ignored in the media coverage was the fact that Allen was also charged with molesting his own seven-year-old adopted daughter, Dylan. While the press dismissed those allegations as unfounded and unworthy of reporting, Sterling notes that Connecticut state authorities, based on the testimony of Dylan and others, have stated that they do believe Woody did molest her, but decided not to prosecute anyway, allegedly to spare the child any further trauma. Sterling also takes note of the case of the Menendez brothers, who, after admitting to murdering their parents, painfully revealed that they were ruthlessly abused and molested by them over the years. Their claims were never fully investigated and the boys were viciously demonized for trying to escape the murder charges and accused of making up their abuse, though there was in fact evidence of that abuse. Also referenced by Sterling is the kid gloves treatment afforded Michael Jackson when he was charged with molestation. Even though the accusations against him are widely believed to be true, they are merely passed off with a laugh among other smirking monologue jokes on Jay Leno. And of course, though not mentioned by Sterling, Sister Latoya was ridiculed by the media when she came forward with stories about the sexual abuse suffered by the Jackson kids at the hands of their father. Other cases discussed in the Sterling piece include the overhyped au pair trial, during which evidence of prior abuse of the child by his parents was consistently ignored, and the Susan Smith case, in which the media refused to consider whether Smith's own severe childhood abuse could have been a factor in the murder of her children, despite the fact that her father admitted to the chronic abuse. Coupled with the fact that the press have consistently downplayed the occurrence of child molestation is the equally disturbing fact that that very same media have actively promoted the sexualization of children, a trend that has been greatly accelerated in recent years and which has served to, to some degree, legitimize pedophilia. Taking note of the proliferation of young teen, and even preteen, sex symbols, Tom Junin wrote in Esquire, February 2001, that, the entire culture is besotted with the erotic promise of teenage girls, the lure of jailbait now supplies the erotic energy to a popular culture desperate for what's new, what's young, what's alive. The Junit article is, strangely enough, a profile of Greg Dark, one half of the former, Dark Brothers, notorious purveyors of dark-themed, occult-tinged porno films. Dark is rather noteworthy for having openly produced and peddled child pornography, in that many of his films featured a very young Tracy Lords, who began working with the Dark Brothers at the age of 13. But Dark has now put those days long behind him. He is now working comfortably in the mainstream. And he is no longer marketing teen sexuality. No, now he is creating music videos, for Britney Spears, Mandy Moore and the preteen Leslie Carter, sister of Aaron Carter and Backstreet Boy, Nick Carter. That is, according to Dark, a completely different line of work. It is not just the media that has been actively promoting the sexualization of children, certain segments of academia have been busily doing so as well. On April 19, 2002, the Washington Times carried a report detailing a movement within academia to promote free sexual expression of children. This movement to legitimize sex between adults and children is gathering steam, warns Stephanie Dallin, researcher for the Leadership Council for Mental Health, Justice and the Media in Philadelphia, an organization that deals with prevention and treatment of child abuse. Some people view children as the next sexual frontier, Ms. Dallin says. Referenced in the Times article is Judith Levine's book Harmful to Minors, The Perils of Protecting Children from Sex, published by the University of Minnesota Press. 
Levine's book endorses a Dutch law passed in 1990 that effectively lowered the age of consent to 12. As the Times article points out, the book is only the most recent in a series of academic arguments for consensual sex involving children. Included among such academic endeavors are an article published in 2000 by the Institute for Advanced Study of Human Sexuality in San Francisco in which the authors claimed that there was considerable evidence that there is no inherent harm in sexual expression in childhood. An interview with San Francisco State University professor Gilbert Hurt in the Dutch pro-pedophilia journal Pydica in which Hurt stated, the category, child, is a rhetorical device for inflaming what is really an irrational set of attitudes against pedophilia. Another interview with Pydica, given by John Money, professor emeritus at Johns Hopkins University, that spoke of genuinely, totally mutual, sex between adult men and young boys. A 1998 study in a journal of the American Psychological Association argued that value-neutral terms such as adult-child sex should be used to describe a willing encounter between an adult pedophile and a child. One of the study's co-authors, Robert Bowserman, with the Maryland Department of Health and Mental Hygiene, has written previously for Pydica. This 1998 study, according to the Times, has already been used as evidence to defend accused child molesters in at least three court cases. Many of these recent arguments in favor of the expression of child sexuality were influenced by the work of Indiana University professor Alfred Kinsey, who claimed in his notorious late 1940s, early 1950s reports on human sexuality that children are sexual from birth. The professor was, oddly enough, another devoted disciple of Aleister Crowley. Kinsey died shortly after paying a visit to Crowley's Thelema Abbey in Sicily with filmmaker and fellow occultist Kenneth Anger, who was the roommate and probable lover of Manson family member Bobby Beausoleil, but we will get to that later. Like child molestation and child abduction, child prostitution is also closely associated with child pornography. And make no mistake about it, child prostitution is a booming business. A&E's investigative reports has noted that law enforcement figures indicate that there are currently some 600,000 child prostitutes working in the United States and Canada in an industry that generates $5 billion a year worldwide. A&E also reported that, throughout North America, there is growing use of children in the sex trade. Young boys make up 51% of that trade. The FBI, alas, has turned a blind eye. For the last quarter century, federal prosecutions of major pimp operations have been virtually non-existent. As Dr. Lois Lee has noted, it's not a high priority with the FBI to go after kids that are being transported across state lines. It's really a disgrace. Dr. Lee is the founder of Children of the Night, an organization devoted to helping repair the shattered lives of child sex trade victims. Her facility, said to be the only one of its kind in the world, has seen 10,000 kids pass through its doors. Fully 90% of them have suffered a lifetime of abuse, first at home, and later on the streets and alleys of America's big cities. Most of them suffered their first abuse before the age of three. Many of these victims are runaways recruited from small towns across the country, and then brought to prime child prostitution markets like Los Angeles and Las Vegas. Once there, they have an average lifespan of just seven years, many of them do not make it through their teenage years. For as long as they survive though, they reap enormous financial rewards for their pimps. The younger the child, the more popular they are with the Johns, and therefore the more profitable for their exploiters. A landmark study on the commercial sexual exploitation of children was concluded by the University of Pennsylvania School of Social Work in 2001. The chilling report issued by the researchers was completely ignored by the U.S. media. 
that no doubt was due in part to the rather curious timing of the release of the report, it was issued on September 10, 2001, less than 24 hours before the World Trade Center towers came crashing down. Written by Richard J. Estes and Neil Allen Weiner, the study notes that the era of economic globalization, internationalization, and free trade has been accompanied by a dramatic rise worldwide in the incidence of child exploitation, child pornography, juvenile prostitution and trafficking in children for sexual purposes have emerged as significant problems on the national, regional, and international stages. So, too, has child sex tourism. The ugly reality is that, in the global marketplace, everything has a price tag, including the sexual services of our children. The study also revealed, CSE, child sexual exploitation, and the CSEC, commercial sexual exploitation of children, appear to be related in complex ways with other forms of child exploitation, such as the use of children in labor, drug and warfare settings. Among the findings summarized in the report's executive summary are all of the following, about 20% of children we encountered in this study were being trafficked nationally by organized criminal units using well-established prostitution tracks. Children are trafficked into, and within, the U.S.B.Y. a variety of private and public means, e.g., cars, buses, vans, trucks, planes. Most trafficked children have available to them a variety of false identity papers for use in case of arrest. The majority of nationally trafficked children both use drugs and engage in drug sales. A, about 10% of the children we encountered are trafficked internationally. Most internationally trafficked children are the citizens of developing countries located in Asia, Africa, Central and South America, and Central and Eastern Europe. International trafficking in children is highly lucrative. A single trafficked child can earn a trafficker as much as $30,000 or more in trafficking fees. In many cases, trafficked children also are required to serve as mules in transporting illicit drugs either into or across the U.S., or both. Obvious in these findings is the fact that the trafficking of children, both nationally and internationally, is an immense, and immensely profitable, criminal enterprise requiring the involvement of a wide range of functionaries, including recruiters, trainers, purveyors of false documents, transporters, money collectors, enforcers, arrangers, investors, corrupt public officials, informers, guides and crew members, supporting personnel and specialists. The university's researchers also discovered approximately 10% of pimps in the U.S. are tied into international sex crime networks. These individuals participate actively in the international trafficking of children, including American children and children who are nationals of other countries. Typically, these pimps also are connected in some way to international drug networks. The close connections between the international trafficking of children and the international trafficking of drugs is significant in that, as a number of researchers have documented, America's Central Intelligence Agency plays a central role in the international drug trade. It would seem then to logically follow that that same organization would be deeply involved in the equally lucrative international trade in children. Just months before the release of the University of Pennsylvania's report, DePaul University's International Human Rights Law Institute released the results of a three-year study of sexual slavery. Researchers concluded that some two million women and children are held in sexual servitude worldwide, and those numbers are growing. As with the other academic study, the report's authors concluded that the advent of globalization has exacerbated the problem by creating what some call market opportunities for traffickers in human beings and for their exploiters. Also as with the other study, researchers found clear evidence of official complicity in the trafficking rings. The report's authors warned that trafficking victims have no one to turn to for help. 
law enforcers are frequently in collusion with the traffickers and exploiters and victims who seek to escape are returned to their captors by those from whom they sought protection. Their despondency and despair is beyond description. An estimated 30,000 of these victims die every year from abuse, torture, neglect and disease. But neither the U.S. media nor the Washington establishment have anything to say about that, leaving the America people in a state of collective ignorance and denial even as child exploitation rings, which constitute a vast underground in this country, grow exponentially. How far does this pedophilic underground extend into the halls of power? Are America's political, corporate and military elite, like their counterparts in Belgium, Latvia and Portugal, hiding a particularly dirty little secret from the American people? A secret that, if exposed, could shatter America's cherished political and economic institutions and bring the house of cards crashing down. Consider the case of Craig Spence, a behind-the-scenes Republican power broker in Washington. In June 1989, the Washington Times published a story that sent shockwaves rippling across Capitol Hill. It seemed that Spence had been deeply involved with a callboy ring that supplied young boys, some of them very young boys, to the elite of both political parties, as well as to visiting dignitaries. It was reported by the Times that a list of some 200 influential clients included the names of government officials, locally based U.S. military officers, businessmen, lawyers, bankers, congressional aides, media representatives and other professionals, only a few of whom were publicly identified. On the guest lists for Spence's parties were former CIA Director William Casey and former Deputy Director of Intelligence Ray Klein, Congressman Barney Frank and Senators John Glenn and Frank Murkowski, political activist propagandist Phyllis Schlafly, former Attorney General John Mitchell, who once co-hosted a party with Spence, journalists William Sapphire, Liz Trotta, Ted Koppel and Eric Savarid, former Ambassadors James Lilly, Robert Newman and Elliot Richardson, General Alfred M. Gray, the Commandant of the U.S. Marine Corps, and Lieutenant General Daniel O. Graham, an expert on the Space Defense Initiative, and former U.S. Attorneys Joseph DiGenova and Victoria Tonsing. Spence once held a birthday bash for the notorious Roy Cohn. He also boasted of playing host to Rock Hudson and other celebrities. Among the revelations in the case was that Spence had taken some of his callboy escorts on private, late-night tours of the White House. The tours, of which there were at least four, were cleared by a uniformed Secret Service guard who moonlighted as a bodyguard at Spence's parties. Spence hinted that the tours were arranged by the National Security Advisor to then-Vice President George H.W. Bush, Donald Gregg, for whom Spence once sponsored a dinner. One of the tours occurred just after Spence stopped by the Nightline studio to see his friend, Ted Koppel. Spence reportedly introduced Koppel to a 15-year-old boy, whom Koppel later claimed Spence had introduced as his son. Koppel though had been a close friend for over 20 years and surely knew that Spence did not have a teenage son. Koppel first met Spence in Southeast Asia when Koppel was serving as the ABC bureau chief in Hong Kong, and Spence was nominally working as an ABC correspondent in Vietnam. Spence openly boasted of working with both the CIA and ranking members of the Reagan and Bush administrations. He claimed that he had been involved in covert operations in Vietnam, Japan, Central America and the Middle East. His claims were scoffed at and he was largely portrayed as a self-important blowhard. There are indications, however, that Spence was involved in covert operations as far back as Vietnam, where he could well have been working under journalistic cover. An associate of his from that era told the Washington Post, Spence pulled disappearing acts in Vietnam, sometimes for weeks at a time, then he'd turn up, refusing to say where he'd been. The sex? 
That's done all the time, a former Bush economic advisor told the press. If a foreign diplomat wants a companion, the State Department provides it. It doesn't matter if it's a man or woman. They have a special fund set up for that. What the unnamed advisor did not say was that such services were provided not as a courtesy to the dignitary, but as a way to compromise and control. Allegations quietly arose that the callboy ring and Spence's parties were part of a CIA sexual blackmail operation. Spence's Washington mansion was said to be overflowing with surveillance equipment, including hidden cameras and microphones and an abundance of two-way mirrors. It was also alleged that cocaine flowed freely at Spence's parties and that he could have been involved in bringing drugs in from El Salvador. The Spence story never really registered on the national media's radar screen. Despite being a largely Republican scandal, it was completely ignored by such pillars of the purportedly liberal press as the New York Times, the Washington Post and the Los Angeles Times. The story soon disappeared entirely in Washington and the media proceeded to pretend as though nothing had ever happened. According to a Washington Times reporter, the paper trail was quickly covered up. Some 20,000 documents pertaining to the case were sealed by court order and the U.S. Attorney's Office issued a gag order on the release of information. By the time that Craig Spence turned up dead in a Boston hotel less than five months after the story first broke, he had been all but forgotten. He had earlier told a friend, I may be disappearing soon. It will be sudden. It may appear to be a suicide, but it won't be. Spence was reportedly found lying on his bed in room 429 of the Ritz-Carlton Hotel, wearing a tuxedo and with a telephone cradled to his ear and a Walkman headset around his neck. He had, according to The Independent, no obvious signs of injury, and police refused to comment on the cause of death. The door to the room was barricaded. Written on the mirror were several messages, one of which read, Chief, consider this my resignation, effective immediately. As you always said, you can't ask others to make a sacrifice if you are not ready to do the same. Life is duty. God bless America. Another was an apology to the hotel, to the Ritz, please forgive this inconvenience. A third was an unexplained Japanese phrase, Nisei Bay. The hotel registry showed that the room the apparent suicide victim was found in was occupied by C.S. Kane. Spence had been subpoenaed by a grand jury but had not yet been called to appear. As it turned out, very few witnesses ever did appear before that grand jury. Spence had also reportedly agreed to provide Penthouse magazine with lurid details of Washington's bisexual wonderland. His story, needless to say, was never told. The callboy ring, oddly enough, had close ties to the funeral home, mortuary business. Robert Chambers was convicted on charges of handling the credit card processing for Professional Services, Inc., an entity that served as a cover for an interlinked network of half a dozen male escort services. Chambers was a funeral director and the son of the owner of the Chambers Funeral Homes chain. He was sentenced to serve 41 months. Two of the linked services, Dream Boys and Man to Man, were reportedly run by Henry Vinson, a mortician and the former coroner of Mingo County, West Virginia. Vincent had moved to D.C. after losing his job as coroner for making harassing phone calls to rival funeral homes. While he was under investigation in Washington, his obituary appeared in West Virginia newspapers, apparently as the result of an assisted effort to fake his death. Vincent ultimately pled guilty and received a 63-month sentence. The presiding judge openly criticized U.S. Attorney Jay Stevens for departing from mandatory sentencing guidelines. Vincent's legal representation was provided by Fox News mouthpiece Greta Van Susteren. Also implicated in the case was Democratic Congressman Barney Frank, whose D.C. 
Home was used as a base of operations for an escort service from late 1985 through mid-1987. The service was run by Frank's lover, Stephen L. Gobi, the son of a Marine Corps Master Sergeant and Pentagon Budget Analyst. Frank wrote a number of letters to probation officials on behalf of Gobi, who had four felony convictions from 1982. Those letters provided the necessary cover for the ring, which Frank denied having knowledge of. Gobi also regularly operated out of Chevy Chase Elementary School, in collusion with the Magnet School's principal, Gabriel A. Massaro, a former school counselor. The school was home to 350 students aged 9 to 12. Massaro vigorously denied that any students were involved in callboy operations, which he eventually admitted were run from the school. In addition to Barney Frank and Gabriel Massaro, Stephen Gobi had close ties to Craig Spence as well. Elsewhere in the country, a political operative named Larry King, hailed as the fastest rising black star in the Republican Party, was embroiled in another high-level pedophile ring. King, whose operation was based in Omaha, Nebraska, had connections to Craig Spence as well as to Ronald Reagan, George Bush, Oliver North, and various other major players in Washington. The King story first began to emerge with the collapse of his Franklin Community Credit Union, one of many such entities that went belly up in the 1980s savings and loan scandals. A special Senate Franklin Committee was established and tasked with looking into allegations of financial improprieties, but soon found itself instead investigating claims of child prostitution, child pornography and ritual homicide. Committee members began receiving anonymous threats. The investigation led to the doorsteps of some of the most powerful men in Omaha, including newspaper publisher Harold Anderson, a lunch partner of George Bush, local columnist Peter Citron, a judge, the mayor, the city's games and parks commissioner, a prominent attorney, the former police chief, businessman Alan Baer, and multi-billionaire Warren Buffett, for whose son King sponsored a political fundraiser. Some of the victim witnesses identified George Bush as being directly complicit. The scandal was completely ignored by the national U.S. media and appears to have been covered by the local press for the sole purpose of discrediting the witnesses and denouncing the investigation as yet another witch hunt. The case did attract some attention from the European press though. Pronto, Spain's largest circulation weekly, reported that the scandal appears to directly implicate politicos of the state of Nebraska and Washington, D.C. who are very close to the White House and George Bush. The report also noted, there is reason to believe that the CIA is directly implicated, and the FBI refuses to help in the investigation and has sabotaged any efforts by others to do so. A documentary film crew from the UK's Yorkshire Television, working in conjunction with the Discovery Channel, worked for months investigating the case. The result of their efforts was a film entitled Conspiracy of Silence, which concluded that the child victim's witnesses were telling the truth. The documentary was scheduled to air on the Discovery Channel on May 3, 1994. Just days before the scheduled airing, the film was pulled without explanation and all copies were ordered destroyed. At least one production copy of the video survived the purge, however, and has been known to circulate among those derisively labeled as conspiracy theorists. For everyone else, the conspiracy of silence continues. The Omaha operation, described in the film as a large ring of rich and powerful pedophiles, appears to have been in business for several years, with the knowledge of, and for the perverse pleasure of, a variety of city, state and federal authorities. Jerry Lowe, the first investigator assigned to the case by the Franklin Committee, reported back, the allegations regarding the exploitation of children are indeed disturbing. 
what appears to be documented cases of child abuse and sexual abuse dating back several years with no enforcement action being taken by the appropriate agencies is on its face, mind-boggling. The investigation revealed that many of the child victims had been recruited from one of America's most revered charitable organizations, Boys Town, with which King had maintained close ties since 1979. Senator and committee member Lauren Schmidt has said that Boys Town was mentioned frequently during the investigation, but we found it difficult to get information about Boys Town, so too did the film crew from Yorkshire Television. Republican State Senator and Franklin Committee member John DeCamp, in his book The Franklin Cover-Up, presents a compelling body of evidence to document the charges made by the child victims and various others associated with the operation. Equally disturbing is the evidence presented of the massive cover-up that was perpetrated by the FBI, local police, a grand jury assigned to the case, and of course the ever-compliant media. The cover-up involved, according to DeCamp, the untimely deaths of at least 15 key players in the scandal, including Franklin Committee investigator Gary Caridori, whose private plane was blown out of the sky on July 11, 1990 with Caridori and his 8-year-old son on board. Caridori had been threatened frequently, as had the witnesses from whom he was gathering information. His vehicle had also been repeatedly tampered with. His brother claimed that Gary had told him that he had recently come to possess a key piece of evidence, a book of addresses and phone numbers, that was so damaging, if they knew he had it, they'd kill him. The wreckage of Caridori's plane, as a reporter on the scene noted, was strewn over a three-quarter to one-mile stretch. A National Transportation Safety Board investigator acknowledged that the fact that the wreckage is scattered over a large area certainly demonstrates that it did break up in flight. Family members claimed that there were items missing from the plane's wreckage, most significantly Caridori's briefcase. Within 24 hours of the crash, all of his records had been impounded by the FBI. Nevertheless, the NTSB ruled that the crash had been accidental, with no evidence of sabotage. The Franklin Committee, led by Senator Schmidt, who suspected sabotage, ordered a private investigation into the cause of the crash. Strangely enough, the man selected to conduct that inquiry was William Colby, a 50-year veteran of intelligence operations whose career began in the OSS during World War II. Colby's hiring was urged by his protege, Senator DeCamp. In the 1950s, Colby served as the CIA station chief in Italy, overseeing the notorious Operation Gladio. In the 1960s, he ran the Phoenix Program, a campaign of assassination, torture and terror that claimed, by Colby's own account, some 20,000 Vietnamese lives. The program was steeped in mind control operations, including the use of prisoners of war as unwilling participants in terminal experiments. One of Colby's top aides in Vietnam was none other than John DeCamp. After Vietnam, Colby served as the director of the CIA under President Nixon. Nixon's appointed successor, Gerald Ford, replaced him with George Bush. Considering his past history, Colby was certainly an odd choice to lead an inquiry aimed at ascertaining the truth. Colby's conclusion, according to the Omaha World Herald, was that although the crash had some strange aspects, there was no specific evidence of sabotage. Just as appalling as the trail of dead witnesses was the fact that the child victims, rather than the perpetrators, were arrested and thrown in prison. One of them, a young female victim, achieved the rather dubious honor of spending more time in solitary confinement than any other woman in the history of the Nebraska penal system. She was sentenced to 9 to 25 years in prison for allegedly committing perjury. Her sentence was 10 years longer than the one Larry King received for looting his financial institution of $40 million. 
DeCamp explained to the Conspiracy of Silence film crew that a message was being sent to every kid who was a potential witness. Senator Schmidt, who told the filmmakers that his pursuit of the investigation had cost him his career and his financial security, believed that a clear signal was being sent to Nebraska politicians as well, a signal to not pursue the investigation any further. A visibly shaken and disillusioned Schmidt explained to the film crew that he used to be a firm believer that the system would work and that people who did things wrong would be punished. And we discovered victims who claimed to have been abused, and who the grand jury acknowledged had been abused, but they did not try to find out who had abused these individuals. Instead, they convicted Alicia Owen of perjury, indefensible from my point of view. It was a full decade before any of the victims received even a semblance of justice, and that came not from the criminal justice system, but from a civil court. In early 1999, a judgment was entered against defendant Larry King in favor of plaintiff Paul Bonacci, who was one of the most severely abused of the child victims. His abuse at the hands of King began when he was just six years old and included his forced collaboration in the production of child snuff films. The memorandum of the district court's decision, issued on February 22, 1999, reads as follows. Between December 1980 and 1988, the complaint alleges the defendant King continually subjected the plaintiff to repeated sexual assaults, false imprisonments, infliction of extreme emotional distress, organized and directed satanic rituals, forced the plaintiff to scavenge for children to be a part of the defendant King's sexual abuse and pornography ring, forced the plaintiff to engage in numerous sexual contacts with the defendant King and others and participate in deviant sexual games and masochistic orgies with other minor children. The defendant King's default has made those allegations true as to him. The now uncontradicted evidence is that the plaintiff has suffered much. He has suffered burns, broken fingers, beatings of the head and face and other indignities by the wrongful actions of the defendant King. In addition to the misery of going through the experiences just related over a period of eight years, the plaintiff has suffered the lingering results to the present time. He is a victim of multiple personality disorder, involving as many as 14 distinct personalities aside from his primary personality. He has given up a desired military career and received threats on his life. He suffers from sleeplessness, has bad dreams, has difficulty in holding a job, is fearful that others are following him, fears getting killed, has depressing flashbacks, and is verbally violent on occasion, all in connection with the multiple personality disorder and caused by the wrongful activities of the defendant King. For the years of unspeakable abuse he suffered, Bonacci was awarded $1 million. While a bittersweet victory at best, it was considerably more than most other victims of such abuse have gotten. The man primarily responsible for inflicting that abuse, Larry King, has been released from prison and is a free man at the time of this writing. Chapter 3, Uncle Sam Wants Your Children. I cannot accept promotion in a system that at first refused to acknowledge and now refuses to deal with the victims of extensive child abuse that occurred at the West Point Child Development Center. Army Captain Walter R. Grote, refusing a promotion to major in June 1985. One of the names that surfaced at the Bonacci trial was that of Michael Aquino, the high priest and chief executive of the Temple of Set, an overtly satanic cult that split off from the Church of Satan in 1975. Besides tending to those duties, Aquino has also been known to occupy his time serving as, according to his official biography, circulated by the Temple, a Lieutenant Colonel, Military Intelligence, U.S. Army.
witness that the incident had taken place. Within a year, at least 60 additional victims had been identified, all between the ages of 3 and 7, and further allegations would be made by parents that several more children were molested even after the investigation had begun. Amazingly enough, the center remained open for more than a year after the first case of abuse was reported, although, as noted by the Mercury News, daycare centers under state jurisdiction are routinely closed when an abuse incident is confirmed. And this was considerably more than a simple abuse incident that had been confirmed. The children told stories that implicated many other perpetrators in addition to Hambright. They also told of being taken away from the center to be abused in private homes, at least three such houses were positively identified. And they told of being forced to play Poa Poa Baseball and the Gugu game, games that involved the children being urinated and defecated upon, and being forced to ingest urine and feces. Many of the children also spoke of having guns pointed at them and of being told that they and or their parents and siblings would be killed if they told anyone what had been done to them. Despite the mounting number of victim, witnesses, and the numerous crimes alleged by these children, only one suspect, Gary Hambright, was arrested on January 5, 1987, and he was charged with abusing just a single child. Even then the charges were dismissed just a few months later, in March 1987. There is little doubt that literally dozens of children were in fact severely abused at the center. There undeniably was medical evidence to document that fact. Five of the children had contracted chlamydia, a sexually transmitted disease, many others showed clear signs of anal and genital trauma consistent with violent penetration. Authorities chose to ignore such evidence. One mother complained to the San Francisco Chronicle that the FBI never interviewed her or her son, even after doctors had confirmed the boy's abuse. In addition to the medical symptoms, there were psychological symptoms as well. As the American Journal of Orthopsychiatry noted in April 1992, the severity of the trauma for children at the Presidio was immediately manifest in clear-cut symptoms. Before the abuse was exposed, parents had already noticed the following changes in their children, vaginal discharge, genital soreness, rashes, fear of the dark, sleep disturbances, nightmares, sexually provocative language, and sexually inappropriate behavior. In addition, the children were exhibiting other radical changes in behavior, including temper outbursts, sudden mood shifts, and poor impulse control. All these behavioral symptoms are to be expected in preschool children who have been molested. The journal article, written by Diane Aronsaft, Ph.D., also noted that the Presidio case has confronted both the public at large and the mental health community with an extraordinary and abhorrent situation of grave psychological proportions, the willful molestation of young boys and girls by representatives of the most patriarchal and supposedly protective arm of the American government, the U.S. Army. Aronsaft observed that a nearly pathological hatred had manifest itself in the fathers of children abused in this way, particularly as they saw their children's cases stonewalled and swept under the rug. One father was quoted as saying, when something about the Presidio comes on TV, I want to blow someone away. Another father echoed that sentiment, I was ready to blow the army base away. One of those who the fathers would have liked to blow away was Michael Aquino. One child positively identified Aquino and his wife, Lilith, known to the kids as Mikey and Shambi, and was also able to identify the Aquino's private home and to describe with considerable accuracy the distinctively satanic interior decor of the house. The young witness claimed to have been photographed at the Aquino's home. On August 14, 1987, a search warrant was served on the house. Confiscated in the raid were numerous videotapes, photographs, photo albums, photographic negatives, cassette tapes, and name and address books. 
also observed was what appeared to be a soundproof room. Neither of the Aquinos was charged with any crimes, nor have they been to this day, a fact that Aquino points to as proof of his innocence. A month after the raid, a fire, which the army deemed to be accidental, destroyed the Army Community Services building adjacent to the Presidio's daycare center. Strangely enough, the fire occurred on the autumnal equinox, a major event on the satanic calendar, as the Mercury News noted. The fire also destroyed some of the Child Development Center's records. Three weeks later, fire struck again, this time at the daycare center itself, a building that housed four classrooms, one of which was Gary Hambright's, was completely destroyed. Investigators from the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms determined both fires, contrary to the Army's finding, had been arson. In between the first and second fires, with evidence indicating that a third arson attempt had been made as well, Hambright was again indicted, this time charged with molesting ten children. In February 1988, all but one of the new charges were dropped. Shortly thereafter, the remaining count was dropped as well. No further charges were brought against him. In January 1988, Aquino filed suit against the army to have it cleared from his record that he had been investigated as a suspected pedophile. According to court records, he also had the gall to charge Captain Adams Thompson, the father of a victim, with conduct unbecoming an officer because the captain reported the allegations of child abuse to the San Francisco police. In denying Aquino's motion, the court concluded there was probable cause to title Aquino with offenses of indecent acts with a child, sodomy, conspiracy, kidnapping, and false swearing, despite the fact that the San Francisco Police Department, SFPD, closed its investigation and filed no charges against the plaintiff or anyone else. Aquino and some of his defenders have consistently claimed that no one was ever prosecuted in the case due to a lack of evidence. This is cited as proof that the entire affair was no more than a witch hunt. Of course, the failure to prosecute the federal charges could have been due to the fact that, at the time, the U.S. attorney in San Francisco handling the case was Joseph Russiniello. Russiniello would later be identified by reporter Gary Webb of the San Jose Mercury News as a player in the Contra cocaine smuggling operation led by Lieutenant Colonel Oliver North and Company, just as witnesses would later identify Lieutenant Colonel Michael Aquino as an operative in the very same sordid affair. In May 1989, Aquino was again questioned in connection with child abuse investigations, this time, at least five children in three cities were making the accusations. The children had seen Aquino in newspaper and television coverage of the Presidio case and immediately recognized him as one of their abusers. Three of the children lived in Ukiah, California, where police chief Fred Keplinger was overseeing the investigation of the allegations. The Mercury News quoted the chief as saying, the children are believable. I have no doubt in my mind that something has occurred. Aquino was also identified by children in Santa Rosa and Fort Bragg, California. In the Fort Bragg case, allegations of ritual abuse erupted in 1985 when several children at the Jubilation Day Care Center said they were sexually abused by a number of people at the day care center and at several locations away from the center, including at least two churches. Aquino was identified as having been present at one of those churches. According to the Mercury News, there was clear evidence of satanic cult activity on the grounds of the Presidio base, including an abundance of satanic graffiti, a satanic altar, and numerous artifacts of satanic rituals. A former MP at the base told the news, we've got a cult on the Presidio of San Francisco and nobody cares about it, we were told by the provost marshal to just forget about it. 
On April 19, 1988, the eve of Adolf Hitler's birthday, an open house was held on the grounds of the Presidio heralding the opening of a new daycare facility built to replace the fire-damaged Child Development Center. Meanwhile, a report in the Marin Independent Journal revealed that Aquino owned a building in Marin County, inherited from his mother, Betty Ford Aquino, that was jointly leased to the Marin County Child Abuse Council and Project Care for Children. The stated purpose of Project Care was, interestingly enough, to assist parents in locating daycare for their children. As disturbing as the Presidio case was, it was just one of many ritual abuse cases directly tied to one or more branches of the United States Armed Forces. As the Mercury News reported, by November, 1987 the Army had received allegations of child abuse at 15 of its daycare centers and several elementary schools. There were also at least two cases in Air Force daycare centers, and another in a center run by the U.S. Navy. In addition, a special team of experts was sent to Panama in June 1988 to help determine if as many as 10 children at a Department of Defense elementary school had been molested and possibly infected with AIDS. Yet another case emerged in a U.S.-run facility in West Germany. These cases erupted at some of the country's most esteemed military bases, including Fort Dix, Fort Leavenworth, Fort Jackson, and West Point. Many of those making the accusations were career military officers who had devoted their lives to unquestioned allegiance to the U.S. armed forces. Many would resign their posts in outraged protest. The West Point case, among others, was alleged to be linked to the Presidio case. As the Times-Herald record reported in June 1991, the incidents at the West Point Child Development Center unfolded against a backdrop of satanic acts, animal sacrifices and cult-like behavior among the abusers, whose activities extended beyond the U.S. Military Academy borders to Orange County and a military base in San Francisco, parents charged. The case first broke in July 1984, when a three-year-old girl found herself in the emergency room of the West Point Hospital with a lacerated vagina. She told the examining physician that a teacher at the daycare center had hurt her. The next month, the parents of another child leveled accusations of abuse at the center. As the Mercury News reported, by the end of the year, 50 children had been interviewed by investigators. Children at West Point told stories that would become horrifyingly familiar. They said they had been ritually abused. They said they had had excrement smeared on their bodies and been forced to eat feces and drink urine. They said they were taken away from the daycare center and photographed. Despite abundant medical and psychological evidence and literally dozens of child witnesses, and despite 950 interviews by 60 FBI agents assigned to the investigation, the investigation, led by former U.S. attorney and future mayor, Rudolph Giuliani, produced no federal grand jury indictments, according to the Herald Record. In 1987, Giuliani said his detailed investigation showed only one or two children were abused. Giuliani's contention was directly contradicted by an independent investigation, as the Herald report divulged, a still-secret, independent report, produced by one of the nation's top experts on child sexual abuse, confirms the children's accusations of abuse. This was not the first time that prestigious West Point had shown an appalling willingness to overlook military personnel directing extreme levels of abuse at children. A year before the abuse case broke, a 22-month-old child was murdered by an Army staff sergeant. The Mercury News reported that following a court-martial hearing, the sergeant was given an 18-month suspended sentence and dishonorable discharge. In other words, he was essentially given a free ride after murdering a child. 
with help from Giuliani, the FBI, the U.S. Army, and the grand jury, the abusers of dozens of children at the daycare center, which was, appropriately enough, building number 666 on the academy grounds, were likewise given a free ride. As with the Franklin case, the children and their parents found justice only through the civil courts. The Herald record revealed that, in a suit brought by the parents, lawyers for both the government and the 11 child plaintiffs agreed that some children were sexually abused at the center two years ago. The government, however, claimed that it could not be held responsible, due to the assault exemption in the Federal Tort Claim Act. As the New York Times explained, under federal law the government cannot be held liable for assaults committed by its employees and thus cannot be sued for assault. In other words, the Army did not dispute the allegations, it just rather cavalierly maintained that it was exempt from being sued for what had occurred at one of its daycare centers. The court saw otherwise, however, and awarded $2.7 million to nine of the child victims, paltry compensation for their suffering, but a victory of sorts nonetheless. The Times opined that the settlement amount was large for a child abuse case in which no criminal charges were filed. The article claimed that the case was not pursued because the Federal Bureau of Investigation found insufficient evidence to prosecute, when in fact the Bureau appears to have deliberately ignored and or covered up that evidence. And so ended the West Point case, except that, as one mother noted, it was hardly over, these people stole our children. She's nothing like she used to be. She's a very angry little girl. She doesn't trust anyone. She's nothing like she was before this happened. It's never going to be over for them, or for us. The mother of a Presidio victim had this to say, people keep telling us we've got to let it go, just forget about it and go on. Three weeks ago, our youngest daughter was having nightmares and our other daughter was closing out the whole world, going to her room and sitting there, with no radio, no TV, no nothing. Tell me it's over. Chapter 4, McMolestation. If there is anyone who can relate to the sentiments expressed by the Presidio and West Point parents, it is the mothers and fathers of the children who attended the infamous McMartin preschool. The McMartin case was, of course, the largest and most well-publicized of the multi-victim, multi-perpetrator ritual abuse cases that captured headlines in the 1980s. It was also a case that was grotesquely misrepresented by the media, both mainstream and alternative, perhaps nowhere more so than in the appalling writings of nation columnist Alexander Cockburn, who went so far as to write an op-ed piece entitled, The McMartin Case, Indict the Children, Jail the Parents, which ran in the Wall Street Journal on February 8, 1990. Virtually everyone agrees that the children of McMartin were victimized. There is considerable debate, of course, over whether that victimization was by abusive caretakers or by overzealous therapists and prosecutors. Either way, Cockburn's stance on the case was unconscionable and should have sent a clear signal to the progressive community that there was considerably more to the McMartin allegations than met the eye. The harsh reality is that the McMartin preschool, in conjunction with at least two other Manhattan Beach preschools and one babysitting service, was the center of a very large child prostitution and child pornography ring whose operations appear to have been protected and covered up by any number of local, state and federal officials. A glimpse of the true nature and scale of the McMartin case is offered by an official correspondence from Sergeant Beth Dickerson of the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department to Agent Kenneth Lanning at the FBI Academy's Behavioral Sciences Unit in Quantico, Virginia, dated February 10, 1985. In August 1983, the Manhattan Beach Police Department began an investigation regarding allegations of sexual abuse occurring at the McMartin Preschool. Altogether, approximately 400 children were evaluated by therapists at Children's Institute International. 
All interviews were videotaped and 350 children disclosed sexual behavior. In all, the victims named seven teachers, six women and one male at the preschool as having molested them. These individuals are currently charged with 209 counts of child molestation. Also named are about 30 other individuals still uncharged, as well as numerous unidentified strangers. McMartin victims allege sexual abuse occurred on school grounds as well as at a local market, churches, a mortuary, various homes, a farm, a doctor's office, other preschools and other unknown locations. Most children state they were photographed in the nude, they mentioned drinking a red or pink liquid that made them sleepy. Children disclose animal sacrificing, bunnies, ponies, turtles, etc., and some of this occurred in churches. Victims describe sticks put in their vaginas and rectums and also being pooped and peed on. Children say that the adults sometimes dressed in black robes, formed a circle around them and chanted. In May 1984, another preschool investigation began in the same policing jurisdiction stemming from a McMartin victim who identified the Manhattan Ranch Preschool as a place where he was taken and molested. Additional children have begun disclosing sexual abuse, approximately 60, and they have named six or more additional suspects. These children talk of strangers coming to the school and molesting them, being taken off campus and molested, being photographed nude and some talk of animals being abused. The children talk of being hit with sticks and a being peed and pooped on. T. He resources of the police department and the district attorney's office were not sufficient in order to follow up on the multitude of uncharged suspects in both preschools. The task force became operational on November 5, 1984. It should be noted that the task force has two other preschools under investigation for alleged sexual abuse in addition to McMartin and Manhattan Ranch. 1. The Learning Game Preschool is clearly linked to McMartin. An astounding 460 children reported being sexually abused at the three closely linked Manhattan Beach schools. Even more astounding, investigative author Michael Newton, among others, has noted that Children's Institute International determined a full 80% displayed physical symptoms, including vaginal or rectal scarring, anal bleeding, painful bowel movements, and the anal wick reflex associated with violent penetration. The stories told by the victim, witnesses were remarkably similar as to the nature of the abuse, the locations where the abuse took place, and the perpetrators of the abuse. And these were not, as is commonly believed, only preschool children telling such stories. Some of the witnesses were former students in their teens and twenties, and their stories corroborated those of the children. The older witnesses were not allowed to testify at the McMartin trials, however, as the statute of limitations for the crimes committed against them had expired. Many of the younger witnesses were unable to offer testimony as well, for various reasons, most notably because they were too severely traumatized. Even so, as author Jan Hollingsworth has pointed out, prosecutors had at their disposal more than a hundred child witnesses as old as 11 and a truckload of medical reports bearing documentation of scarred genitals and anuses. The stories told by these children, it should be noted, were not fed to them by some diabolical team of therapists and headline-seeking journalists. Many of them were offered spontaneously to hundreds of parents and scores of childcare specialists. And many of the victims of the McMartin Preschool, all adults now, still tell the same stories today. Anyone suggesting that the allegations in the McMartin case were true and that a massive cover-up concealed the true nature and scope of the case is likely to be labeled a conspiracy theorist.
The most preposterous conspiracy theory surrounding McMartin, however, has always been the notion that some cabal of overzealous therapists was able to implant false memories of heinous abuse in the minds of nearly 500 individuals and have them persist to this day. Despite the vast number of eyewitnesses, most of them bearing physical evidence of abuse, and despite the fact that the judge who presided over more than a year of pre-trial testimony ruled that the state had more than enough evidence to proceed to trial, District Attorney Ira Reiner inexplicably dropped all charges against five of the seven McMartin defendants on January 17, 1986. Six days before that, he had summarily dismissed two prosecutors on the case. At least three dozen suspects who had been independently identified by numerous witnesses were never indicted at all. One of these was a man named Robert Winkler, who was arrested in neighboring Torrance, California and charged with running a baby-sitting service out of the Coco Palms Motel that authorities described as a front for a sexual abuse ring. Children in the McMartin case recognized Winkler in news footage as the man they had known as the Wolfman. The kids described Winkler as being a frequent visitor to the school, who oftentimes delivered drugs for use in abusive rituals, which were sometimes conducted in churches, a cemetery, or a crematorium. The Wolfman, conveniently enough, turned up dead on the eve of his trial, allegedly of a drug overdose. Winkler was not the only one to miss his day in court in conjunction with the McMartin case. Judy Johnson, the first McMartin parent to lodge a complaint, never delivered her scheduled testimony. Her body was found sprawled naked on the floor of her home, her death said to be due to complications from her chronic alcoholism. Before her death, she was regularly derided by defense attorneys and their media allies as a deranged crank. In truth, Johnson was not known to have any mental problems or a drinking problem before learning of the unthinkable abuse her child had suffered. Considered a key prosecution witness, Johnson received frequent threats before her death and she was followed when she ventured out in public. Many of the other McMartin parents were openly skeptical of Johnson's stated cause of death. A former Hermosa Beach police officer named Paul Bynum, who had been hired by the parents of victims as a private investigator, turned up dead on the eve of his scheduled testimony as well. His death by gunshot was ruled a suicide, though those close to Bynum dispute that finding. Among other things, Bynum may have testified about his examination of the tunnel excavation project conducted at the school site. This was, of course, the object of much derision by the media. The fact that the children repeatedly told stories of tunnels under the property by which they could be secretly transported to and from the school, and in which they were subjected to horrific abuse in a secret room, was frequently cited as proof that the children's stories were fabrications. It was universally accepted that the tunnels did not actually exist, that being the consensus view of the media and law enforcement authorities. Nevertheless, while it is true that the investigation commissioned by the district attorney's office found no evidence of tunnels, another investigation, ignored by the media, certainly did. Many of the parents were not satisfied with the superficial examination by the DA's office and commissioned another investigation of the site when the property was sold in April 1990. To lead the project, they hired E. Gary Stickle, Ph.D., a highly regarded archaeologist recommended to them by the chair of the interdisciplinary program of the archaeology department at UCLA. Stickle's resume included serving as a consultant to George Lucas on the Indiana Jones movies. Also brought on board were several other technical specialists. As Stickle wrote in his report on the excavation, by engaging a highly recommended professional archaeological team, the parents hoped to bring scientific authority to whatever might be found or a definitive resolution for whatever was not to be found. 
And what the team found was precisely what the children, for the previous seven years, had been telling them they would find. The project unearthed not one but two tunnel complexes as well as previously unrecognized structural features which defied logical explanation. Both tunnel complexes conformed to locations and functional descriptions established by children's reports. One had been described as providing undetected access to an adjacent building on the east. The other provided outside access under the west wall of the building and contained within it an enlarged, cavernous artifact corresponding to children's descriptions of a secret room. Both the contour signature of the walls and the nature of recovered artifacts indicated that the tunnels had been dug by hand under the concrete slab floor after the construction of the building. Not only did the discovered features fulfill the research prequalifications as tunnels designed for human traffic, there was also no alternative or natural explanation for the presence of such features. If the stories of the children were bogus fantasies, there is no excuse for the tunnels discovered under the school. If there really were tunnels, there is no excuse for the glib dismissal of any and all of the complaints of the children and their parents. This investigation was completed before the McMartin trials concluded, and yet this devastating evidence was never presented in court by the prosecution team. The existence of this detailed report, complete with photographs and maps of the tunnel complex, was known to the local and national press, but it was never reported. To this day, it is denied that any tunnels ever existed under the McMartin preschool. The denial of the tunnels is necessary to maintain the illusion that the children were not credible witnesses, that illusion being an essential component of the cover-up. For if the children were credible, the implications run far deeper than the tunnels under the school. There are, for example, the stories told by the children of being pimped out as child prostitutes in private homes and businesses all over the community. They also spoke frequently of being photographed and videotaped while being abused. District Attorney Robert Filibosian publicly declared the McMartin Preschool to be an elaborate front for a massive child pornography operation. Twenty-three parents filed a civil lawsuit making the very same claim. Other stories told repeatedly by the children were even more disturbing. They told of being forced to witness and participate in the ritual torture, killing and mutilation of animals and, on occasion, of human babies and children as well. They spoke of being forced to drink the blood and eat the flesh of the slaughtered corpses, of witnessing the beheading of infants, and of being forced to stab infants themselves. They told as well of being sealed in coffins with the mutilated corpses. And they spoke of being subjected to every sort of depraved sexual activity imaginable, including necrophilia, coprophilia and bestiality. The abuse was of such stunning brutality that it is almost beyond human comprehension that anyone could inflict such physical and psychological torture on children. And yet these stories were soon being told by thousands of other kids across the country as preschool abuse cases spread like wildfire. Young children from all walks of life, and from all parts of the country, were all telling remarkably similar stories of horrific ritual abuse. How was this possible? If they were all victims of false memories, how vast a conspiracy would be required for therapists all across the country to implant the very same memories in all of these children? Experts have noted that the victimized children show a level of knowledge that defies rational explanation if the kids have not experienced what they claim to have experienced. For instance, these child victims can accurately describe the look, smell, texture and colors of human viscera. This is an ability, it has been argued, that very few adults possess, other than those who have been trained as surgeons or coroners. 
These children also display a remarkable level of knowledge of a wide variety of unconventional human sexual practices, including many acts that, again, most adults do not have knowledge or awareness of. If these children did not experience these things firsthand, then how did they gain such knowledge? In February 1985, Officer Sandy Galland of the San Francisco Police Department submitted a report to her superiors noting the similarities in numerous ritual abuse cases. She had gathered evidence from fellow officers and police departments across the country and summarized the evidence referenced in the police reports submitted to her. An excerpt from her report reads as follows. The information contained herein is distasteful and bizarre to such a degree that one would choose to discredit it. However, research that I have done in this area has revealed that numerous cases of this type are surfacing around the country and in Canada. The similarities in the stories of each child victim used in these crimes tend to give credibility to the information revealed by others. Additionally, the psychiatrists and therapists who have been treating the victims state that the consistency of the stories and the explicit details revealed cause them to believe that these children are telling the truth. It is also the belief of each law enforcement officer who submitted information for this report that the victims are being truthful and that, in fact, children would be unable to make such stories up. During my research, similarities began surfacing which indicate the strong probability that there exists a network of people in this country involved in the sexual abuse and possible homicides of young children. These cases appear to differ from isolated cases of abuse towards children in that the crimes mentioned here have been committed with one common goal in mind, that of mutilating and murdering children for ritualistic or sacrificial purposes. Many of the cases reported also reveal the possibility of child pornography beyond the normal type of kiddie porn in that these children are photographed during rituals with some members in robes or other garb and candles, snakes, swords, altars and other types of ritualistic material being used. Gallant requested that the report be sent on to the chief of police for him to review and then forward to the FBI. Following his review, however, the chief declined to submit the report. Gallant next tried to get the U.S. Department of Justice to review the paperwork, but she was rebuffed there as well. As for the McMartin case, there has never been any question that the children there were horrifically abused. Though rarely noted in press reports, the jurors were clearly of the opinion that that was, in fact, the case. The hung juries and acquittals in the various proceedings were the result of the jury members' inability to identify the perpetrators of the abuse, not the reflection of any belief that there wasn't any abuse. The jurors attributed their inability to identify the perpetrators to the inept presentation of the prosecution's case. Also rarely noted in the reporting on the trials is that the matriarch of the McMartin family, Virginia McMartin, admitted on the stand that one of her own granddaughters believed that her own children had been molested at the school. Virginia McMartin, incidentally, was more than just your run of the mill preschool operator. In the mid-1960s, she achieved a sort of semi-celebrity status in the childcare field and traveled extensively as a consultant, including stops in New Zealand, Australia, Denmark, Sweden, Norway and England. Another notable aspect of the McMartin trials is that the defense team was allowed to subject the child witnesses to the longest pretrial hearing in the nation's history. Facing a battery of as many as seven rabid defense attorneys, the already severely traumatized children were verbally assaulted for weeks on end in a deliberate attempt to break them. The state made little effort to protect these young victim witnesses. In the final analysis, the logical conclusion to be drawn from the McMartin case is that 460 kids did not all conspire to lie about the abuse they suffered. 
They also did not likely lie about their involvement in child prostitution and child pornography. They certainly did not lie about the tunnels under the school. They probably did not lie about their forced involvement in satanic rituals in which adults sheathed in black ceremonial robes uttered chants. In fact, at least one such robe was seized from the home of a defendant. And perhaps most tragically, there is good reason to believe that they did not lie about the blood sacrifices either. Chapter 5, It Couldn't Happen Here Prosecutor Dan Casey, did you exercise any kind of mind control over your wife in order to get her to have sexual contact? Frank Fuster, if I had that power, you think I would use it against? You know, I don't, I have never. I'm a normal human being. Quote dot. On August 8, 1984, Bobby Dean stood on the front lawn of the Fuster home in the Country Walk housing development, a picture-perfect, planned community of relatively upscale, suburban homes in Dade County, Florida. By all appearances, this was a small slice of paradise, an oasis untouched by the grim realities of American society. On this day, however, Dean had a loaded gun tucked in his waistband, and he fully intended to use it. He was there to finish the job that someone else had failed to complete on December 18, 1980, when an unidentified assailant had confronted Francisco Fuster Escalona, a.k.a. Frank Fuster, at his place of business and shot him once in the side of the head. Fuster survived that attack, which he explained to the police as a botched robbery, though the officers thought it looked more like an attempted execution. Dean did not get the chance to make another attempt, police were on the scene in short order to arrest him. Fuster himself surrendered to police two days later in response to the issuance of an arrest warrant. He had been under investigation following accusations by neighborhood parents that Frank and his wife, Ileana, had been brutally abusing the children who were left in the trusted care of the Fuster's babysitting service, which was run out of their country walk home. Fuster had, shall we say, rather questionable qualifications to run a daycare center. On January 16, 1969, Fuster fired two shots into the chest of a fellow motorist in New York City, killing him instantly. An off-duty police officer was, curiously enough, an eyewitness to the summary execution. Even more curiously, Fuster chambered another round and pointed his gun directly at the armed officer, and yet was not shot. He was arrested though, and convicted and sentenced before the year was out. On Halloween Day, he was sentenced to a 10-year prison term, but was back on the streets in less than four, receiving psychiatric care. In November 1982, he was convicted again, this time on charges of committing a lewd assault on a nine-year-old girl. Despite that being his second felony conviction, Fuster was sentenced to just two years probation. It was while on probation for the child molestation conviction that Fuster and his underage wife started the babysitting service. Fuster's probation officer apparently had no problem with that business venture, even though it violated the terms of Frank's probation by bringing him into unsupervised contact with at least 50 kids, at least 30 of whom later reported being horrifically abused. Fuster's probation officer also managed to overlook the fact that Frank had self-terminated his court-ordered psychiatric treatment in August 1983. No one really seems to have been too concerned about Fuster's babysitting service, which, in addition to being run by a convicted murderer and child molester, was operating without proper licensing and in violation of local zoning laws, which stated that commercial enterprises were expressly forbidden in the residential community. Nevertheless, the service operated with the full knowledge of the entity managing the complex. In fact, Fuster's service used the name Country Walk Babysitting Service, implying that his was an officially sanctioned service provided by the management. 
After Frank's past and present activities were exposed, the management company, Arvita, denied that it had ever any official links to the Fuster operation. That, of course, was not surprising, given that Arvita was a subsidiary of the Walt Disney Company, which had little interest in being perceived as having connections to a child molestation operation. The fact remains, however, that the company took no actions against Fuster for the illegal expropriation of the Country Walk name or for violating zoning regulations. Dade County also took a handsome approach to the Fuster business enterprise. Despite the fact that Frank lacked other required licenses, he was issued an occupational license to run the babysitting service. Detective Donna Mesnarich was the first police investigator sent to look into the allegations being made by the Country Walk parents. She was openly skeptical of the charges before she even knew what they actually were. The parents felt that she came calling with an unmistakable attitude of disbelief. Nevertheless, enough evidence was obtained to issue an arrest warrant for Frank Fuster for probation violations. Considerably more evidence could have been gathered had police conducted a timely search of the Fuster home. Facing imminent arrest, Fuster was observed by his country walk neighbors hastily packing boxes into a white van. Fearing the loss of valuable physical evidence, parents contacted Detective Mesnarich, who failed to respond. She did execute a search warrant the next day, on a home largely, though not entirely, cleansed of incriminating evidence. Once Fuster was safely in custody, the stories told by his child victims grew increasingly disturbing. They told of being forced to play PP and CACA games. A photo was later produced at trial showing Fuster's young son Jamie, one of the most severely abused of the victims, sitting in a bathroom smeared thickly with excrement. The children also told of being forced to drink Magic Punch, later revealed by Fuster's wife to be a mixture of Gatorade, urine, and various drugs. It was revealed at trial that a close friend of the Fuster family owned a pharmacy, which provided a reliable source for drugs. This friend was particularly close to Fuster's mother and uncle. The young victims also told of having their lives threatened repeatedly, and of having their parents' and siblings' lives threatened as well. They had been compelled to play a game, they said, called, Who's Gonna Lose Their Head? This game frequently ended with the ritual decapitation of an animal, typically a bird. Finally, perhaps inevitably, the children claimed that they were frequently photographed and videotaped, both while being sexually abused and during occult rituals. Fuster claimed to have never owned any video equipment, and none was found in the belated search of the Fuster home. Jamie Fuster though recalled seeing video equipment, as well as guns, being packed into the boxes that were loaded into the van just before Fuster's arrest. Some investigators have speculated that Fuster was in the business of producing and selling custom, made-to-order, child pornography videos. He certainly lived quite well for a self-employed mini-blind installer. He had no problem, for example, coming up with a down payment for his country walk home, and he maintained no fewer than six bank accounts. He was in the habit of making lump-sum deposits of as much as $20,000 in cash. Fuster apparently liked to screen home videos for the kids, one of which was said to be a snuff film that the children described as depicting two men butchering a woman in a bathtub and then eating her. Some of the kids also, as a side note, spoke of being hypnotized by Ileana Fuster, who they said wore a hypnotizer on a chain around her neck. The trial of Frank Fuster had notable parallels to the McMartin prosecutions, although it differed in significant ways as well. The country walk parents who actively and vocally worked to see Fuster brought to justice were subjected to death threats by phone, 
obscene messages in the mail, and dead chickens left on their doorsteps, similar to the harassment suffered by their counterparts in Manhattan Beach. Also like McMartin, the primary defense strategy was to bring in a hired gun expert of questionable qualifications to attempt to discredit the children's testimony. The children had been brainwashed by the overzealous therapists, it was claimed, as the treacherous therapists were crucified as being the true guilty parties in what was cast as a witch hunt. The man originally slated to play the starring role for the defense was Ralph Underwager, at the time a prominent mouthpiece for a group calling itself Vocal, for victims of child abuse laws. As the name implies, this group was largely composed of indicted and or convicted pedophiles. Underwager had been present at the birth of the organization. The defense suffered a bit of a setback when it was revealed at a pretrial deposition that Underwager's credentials as an expert in the field of child development were non-existent. He was quietly dropped by the defense and replaced with Lee Stewart Coleman, who also had close ties to Vocal. Coleman had played a key role in the unsuccessful prosecution of the defendants in one of the McMartin Link preschools. Coleman did not succeed in his mission in the Country Walk case. Fuster was found guilty on all 14 of the counts brought against him. One reason for that is that the children were protected from the abusive pretrial treatment received by the McMartin kids. In addition, police and prosecutors, with some notable exceptions, seem to have actually made an effort to win the case. Why was this prosecution not subverted as so many others were? That is difficult to say, although the answer may lie in the makeup of the parents seeking justice for their children, among them were a police sergeant, a police lieutenant, two former state prosecutors, a former chief assistant state attorney, and a gun-toting vigilante named Bobby Dean. In the end, Frank Fuster, the man who appeared at his pretrial hearing in what was described as a catatonic trance, was sentenced to be imprisoned until the year 2150. Not even the Santeria priest who attended the trial with Fuster's mother and uncle had the power to save him. An Arvita, which is to say, the Walt Disney Co., paid $6 million to seven of his victims. Even so, justice was not necessarily served. According to the victims, at least two other adults were involved in the abuse. The state knew the identity of at least one of them, but he was never charged with any crimes. Had he been, there is no telling where the investigation might have led, his wife had once run her own babysitting service. With the heightened awareness of the issue of child abuse engendered by the high-profile Fuster case, a number of other cases surfaced in the Miami area. In the course of one investigation, police inadvertently stumbled upon a collection of hundreds of photographs of a convicted child pornographer engaged in sexual acts with young boys. The man was promptly arrested. Two days after his release on bond, he was found in a Miami hotel room with a bullet hole in his head. His death was, naturally, ruled a suicide. His timely suicide preempted an investigation that could, it seems reasonable to conclude, have led to the elementary school that was directly across from his home, studio. Another case that broke in the wake of Country Walk was that of Harold, Grant, Snowden, whose wife had also run a babysitting service. Dozens of kids had passed through her care over the course of a decade. It took two trials, but Snowden was ultimately convicted. In 1983, he had been named the South Miami Police Department's Officer of the Year. Stepping up to handle the appeal of his conviction was F. Lee Bailey, who in the late 1960s had represented a U.S. Air Force captain in South Carolina accused of molesting multiple child victims. Bailey will be revisited later in this book. Years later, in August 2002, Florida authorities issued a warrant for the arrest of a former minister and radio evangelist named Troy Cecil Snowden. 
A search of his Cape Coral home had yielded weapons, child pornography and other unspecified items. Chapter 6, Finders Keepers. People want to believe that I am at the center of everything. They are mistaken, I did things of which I was not the driving force. I was used as an instrument by others, who were themselves used as instruments by others. Mark Dutroux. Just a few years after the conviction of Frank Fuster, another child exploitation case surfaced briefly in the state of Florida. On February 7, 1987, not long before the Larry King and Craig Spence operations were exposed, the Washington Post ran an interesting story that, at the time, did not seem to have any particular national significance. The article concerned a case of possible kidnapping and child abuse, and read in part as follows. Authorities investigating the alleged abuse of six children found with two men in a Tallahassee, Florida park discovered material yesterday in the Washington area that they say points to a 1960s-style commune called the Finders, described in a court document as a cult that allegedly conducted brainwashing and used children in rituals. D.C. police, who searched a northeast Washington warehouse linked to the group removed large plastic bags filled with color slides, photographs and photographic contact sheets. Some photos visible through a bag carried from the warehouse at 1307 4th Street, northeast were wallet-sized pictures of children, similar to school photos, and some were of naked children. D.C. police sources said some of the items seized yesterday showed pictures of children engaged in what appeared to be cult rituals. Officials of the U.S. Customs Service, called in to aid in the investigation, said that the material seized yesterday includes photos showing children involved in bloodletting ceremonies of animals and one photograph of a child in chains. Customs officials said they were looking into whether a child pornography operation was being conducted. Their links to the D.C. area have led authorities into a far-reaching investigation that includes the Finders, a group of about 40 people that court documents allege is led by a man named Marion Petty, and their various homes, including the duplex apartment building in Glover Park, the Northeast Washington Warehouse and a 90-acre farm in rural Madison County, Virginia. The children, identified in a court document only by the first names of Honeybee, John, Franklin, B.B., Max and Mary, were described as dirty, unkempt, hungry, disturbed and agitated. They had been living in the rear of the van for some time, the document said. Yesterday, police spokesman Hun said one of the children, a six-year old girl, showed signs of sexual abuse. Five of the children were uncommunicative, according to police, and none seemed to recognize objects such as typewriters and staplers. However, the oldest was able to give investigators some information. She said that the two men were their teachers, according to Hunt. Before their arrests in the park, the two adult caretakers had told police that they were teachers from Washington, transporting these children to Mexico and a school for brilliant children, according to Hunt. When police asked the men where the children's mothers were they said they were being weaned from their mothers. It was nearly seven years before the press revisited the Finder's case, with the follow-up provided by U.S. News & World Report. Most likely, the strange saga of the Finder's would have disappeared forever if not for the rumors surrounding the case that just would not seem to go away. These rumors were addressed in the U.S. News report as follows. One of the unresolved questions involves allegations that the finders are somehow linked to the Central Intelligence Agency. Customs Service documents reveal that in 1987, when customs agents sought to examine the evidence gathered by Washington, D.C. police, they were told that the finders' investigation had become an internal matter. 
the police report on the case had been classified secret. Even now, Tallahassee police complain about the handling of the finder's investigation by D.C. police. They dropped this case, one Tallahassee investigator says, like a hot rock. D.C. police will not comment on the matter. As for the CIA, ranking officials describe allegations about links between the intelligence agency and the finders as pogwash, perhaps the result of a simple mix-up with D.C. police. The only connection, according to the CIA, a firm that provided computer training to CIA officers also employed several members of the finders. It should probably be noted here that the firm that supplied the training to CIA officers didn't just employ several members of the Finders, but appears to have in fact been a wholly owned subsidiary of the Finders organization. It should also be noted that the CIA does not, as a general rule of thumb, assign the training of its officers to outside contractors, unless, that is, the private firm utilized in such a capacity as a CIA front. In the last paragraph of the U.S. News report, more intriguing connections to Langley are revealed. The CIA's interest in the finders may stem from the fact that group leader Marion Petty's late wife once worked for the agency and that his son worked for a CIA proprietary firm, Air America. Aside from acknowledging these by then widely known, in Washington, CIA connections, the U.S. News reporters did their very best to bury the finder story once and for all. The case is almost seven years old now, but matters surrounding a mysterious group known as the Finders keep growing curiouser and curiouser. In early February 1987, an anonymous tipster in Tallahassee, Florida, made a phone call to police. Two well-dressed men seemed to be supervising six disheveled and hungry children in a local park, the caller said. The cops went after the case like bloodhounds, at least at first. The two men were identified as members of the Finders. They were charged with child abuse in Florida. In Washington, D.C., police and U.S. Customs Service agents raided a duplex apartment building and a warehouse connected to the group. Among the evidence seized, detailed instructions on obtaining children for unknown purposes and several photographs of nude children. According to a Customs Service memorandum obtained by U.S. News, one photo appeared to accent the child's genitals. The more the police learned about the finders, the more bizarre they seemed. There were suggestions of child abuse, Satanism, dealing in pornography and ritualistic animal slaughter. None of the allegations was ever proved, however. The child abuse charges against the two men in Tallahassee were dropped. All six of the children were eventually returned to their mothers, though in the case of two, conditions were attached by a court. In Washington, D.C., police began backing away from the finders investigation. The group's practices, the police said, were eccentric, not illegal. The article closed by complaining, some of the rumors can last an awfully long time, indeed they can, though they have had to circulate outside of the media, which has never again mentioned the case. That does not mean, however, that there is no additional information available on the subject. As the U.S. news reporters noted in their report, there is a certain customs service memorandum that was written at the time of the original 1987 investigation. As that document was in the hands of the news reporters at the time the story was written, as they readily acknowledge, it should logically follow that any pertinent information contained therein would have been faithfully reported. And as we know, the news concluded, none of the allegations was ever proved. Still, it might be instructive to review the document to see what kind of eccentric, not illegal, practices it was that the group was involved in. The memo in question is actually a series of memos that were written by U.S. Customs Service Special Agent Ramon J. Martinez.
In the officer's own words, this is what he observed while participating in the investigation. On Thursday, February 5, 1987, this office was contacted via telephone by Sergeant Joanne Van Meter of the Tallahassee Police Department, Juvenile Division. SGT Van Meter requested assistance in identifying two adult males and six minor children ages seven years to two years. The adult males were tentatively identified by TPD as Michael Houlihan and Douglas Ammerman, both of Washington, D.C., who were arrested the previous day on charges of child abuse. The police had received an anonymous telephone call relative to well-dressed white men wearing suits and ties in Myers Park, Tallahassee, apparently watching six dirty and unkempt children in the playground area. Houlihan and Ammerman were near a 1980 Blue Dodge van bearing Virginia license number XHW557, the inside of which was later described as foul-smelling, filled with maps, books, letters, with a mattress situated to the rear of the van which appeared as if it were used as a bed, and the overall appearance of the van gave the impression that all eight persons were living in it. The children were covered with insect bites, were very dirty, most of the children were not wearing underwear and all of the children had not been bathed in many days. The men were arrested and charged with multiple counts of child abuse and lodged in the Leon County Jail. Once in custody the men were somewhat evasive in their answers to the police regarding the children and stated only that they both were the children's teachers and that all were en route to Mexico to establish a school for brilliant children. U.S. Customs was contacted because the police officers involved suspected the adults of being involved in child pornography and knew the Customs Service to have a network of child pornography investigators and of the existence of the Child Pornography and Protection Unit. S.S.A. Creedlow stated the two adults were well-dressed white males. They had custody of six white children, boys and girls, ages three to six years. The children were observed to be poorly dressed, bruised, dirty, and behaving like wild animals in a public park in Tallahassee. SSA Creedlow was further advised the children were unaware of the function and purpose of telephones, televisions and toilets, and that the children had stated they were not allowed to live indoors and were only given food as a reward. Upon contacting Detective Bradley, I learned that he had initiated an investigation on the two addresses provided by the Tallahassee Police Department. During December of 1986, an informant had given him information regarding a cult known as the Finders operating various businesses out of a warehouse located at 1307 4th Street, North E, and were supposed to be housing children at 3918 3920th W Street, NW. The information was specific in describing blood rituals and sexual orgies involving children and an as yet unsolved murder in which the Finders may be involved. With the information provided by the informant, Detective Bradley was able to match some of the children in Tallahassee with names of children known or alleged to be in the custody of the finders. Furthermore, Bradley was able to match the tentative ID of the adults with known members of the finders. I stood by while Bradley consulted with Asa Harry Benner and obtained search warrants for the two premises. I advised acting RACSS, a Tim Halloran of my intention to accompany MPD on the execution of the warrants, received his permission, and was joined by SSA Herald. SSA Herald accompanied the team which went to 1307 4th Street, and I went to 3918 20th W Saint during the execution of the warrant at 3918 20th W Street. I was able to observe and access the entire building. There were several subjects on the premises. 
Only one was deemed to be connected with the finders. He was located in a room equipped with several computers, printers, and numerous documents. Cursory examination of the documents revealed detailed instructions for obtaining children for unspecified purposes. The instructions included the impregnation of female members of the community known as the finders, purchasing children, trading, and kidnapping. There were telex messages using MCI account numbers between a computer terminal believed to be located in the same room, and others located across the country and in foreign locations. One such telex specifically ordered the purchase of two children in Hong Kong to be arranged through a contact in the Chinese embassy there. Another telex expressed interest in bank secrecy situations. Other documents identified interests in high-tech transfers to the United Kingdom, numerous properties under the control of the finders, a keen interest in terrorism, explosives, and the evasion of law enforcement. Also found in the computer room was a detailed summary of the events surrounding the arrest and taking into custody of the two adults and six children in Tallahassee the previous night. There were also a set of instructions which appeared to be broadcast via a computer network which advised the participants to move the children and keep them moving through different jurisdictions and instructions on how to avoid police attention. On Friday, February 6, 87, I met Detective Bradley at the warehouse on 4th Street, NE I duly advised my acting group supervisor, SSA Don Bloodworth. I was again granted unlimited access to the premises. I was able to observe numerous documents which described explicit sexual conduct between the members of the community known as finders. I also saw a large collection of photographs of unidentified persons. Some of the photographs were nudes, believed to be of members of the finders. There were numerous photos of children, some nude, at least one of which was a photo of a child on display and appearing to accent the child's genitals. I was only able to examine a very small amount of the photos at this time. However, one of the officers presented me with a photo album for my review. The album contained a series of photos of adults and children dressed in white sheets participating in a blood ritual. The ritual centered around the execution of at least two goats. The photos portrayed the execution, disembowelment, skinning and dismemberment of the goats at the hands of the children. This included the removal of the testes of a male goat, the discovery of a female goat's womb and the baby goats inside the womb, and the presentation of a goat's head to one of the children. Further inspection of the premises disclosed numerous files relating to activities of the organization in different parts of the world. Locations I observed are as follows, London, Germany, the Bahamas, Japan, Hong Kong, Malaysia, Africa, Costa Rica, and Europe. There was also a file identified as Palestinian, other files were identified by member name or project name. The projects appearing to be operated for commercial purposes under front names for the finders. There was one file entitled Pentagon Break-In, and others referring to members operating in foreign countries. Not observed by me but related by an MPD officer were intelligence files on private families not related to the finders. The process undertaken appears to be have been a systematic response to local newspaper advertisements for babysitters, tutors, etc. A member of the finders would respond and gather as much information as possible about the habits, identity, occupation, etc. of the family. The use to which this information was to be put is still unknown. There was also a large amount of data collected on various child care organizations. 
The warehouse contained a large library, two kitchens, a sauna, hot tub, and a video room. The video room seemed to be set up as an indoctrination center. It also appeared that the organization had the capability to produce its own videos. There were what appeared to be training areas for children and what appeared to be an altar set up in a residential area of the warehouse. Many jars of urine and feces.